a world filled with fast-paced living and constant demands on the aging body, it's easy to forget some of the simplest yet most essential elements of our well-being, hydration and nutrients. As you know, when I'm not in the studio recording a podcast or in the gym or out in the scrub hunting, putting rounds downrange, I'm somewhere in the world on a security gig, putting in the hard yards, ending up on TikTok. So legends that get some, keep me advancing forward, Jocko Fuel Supplements. More specifically, I've been smashing the Jocko Hydrate Sachets, which helps me replenish my electrolytes and other critical vitamins while boosting energy and supporting recovery. Also, just like my kids, my appetite for veggies goes as far as hot chips from the kernel. However, every morning I'll mix a scoop of Jocko Greens, Jocko Creatine into water, which helps me supplement my lack of and delivers all the nutrients for better gut health, immune support, cognitive function, and physical performance. And not to mention, tastes bloody good. So head over to www.getsome.com.au and use the code Zero Limits all in caps for a discount. I'll leave you with this for the day. Hard work, clean fuel, stronger, faster, smarter, better. Let's go. It's time for the Zero Limits Podcast, hosted by Australian veterans. Chatting with high-charging humans with hectic stories from around the world. We'll give you the motivation to take on whatever life throws at you and the kick to complete any goal you set your mind to. Let's go. On today's Zealanders podcast, have a special guest, another Australian Army Defence Force member. However, he spent the majority of his career within two commando. There is a funny story on how he joined the Army, which I think is pretty hilarious. Because, you know, down the track, he become, you know, a very, one of the best within the Defence Force. And the way he joined was he was looking for a truck licence and uh, ended up in the Army. But we'll get him to tell that story. Also, later on in life, post-discharge, he's moved into the the sales worlds of uh, selling gear. But we can definitely touch on that. Now, I did a podcast a couple of weeks ago with uh, Joe Piersanti. As you might have heard, if you've listened to that podcast, he was shot in the head. Now, during this contact, the guy that I'm speaking to right now was there and was the guy that actually dragged Joe onto the helo. So, mate, Dave Parker, how you doing, mate? Yeah, not too bad, mate. Yeah, thanks for having us on. No, mate, appreciate you and uh, appreciate you giving your time and wanting to show, share your story. You know, you've had a, an extensive career within the Defence Force, especially, you know, going back to the commando days, back in the four-hour days when it was, you know, obviously before commandos. And you're one of those uh, OGs, as we'd say that, uh, you know, help establish what they are today. And then obviously talking about Joe Piersanti, you were there. You were the guy that dragged him in and plugged his head and uh, kept him alive until, you know, he got to the, the role too. Well, yeah, well, well, that day, mate, was an absolute team effort. Like, yeah, it was yeah, it was pretty um, pretty pivotal for a lot of guys it was. But, um, yeah, Joe, Joe's not a guy you can drag on anywhere <laughs> Big dude. Mate, like, he's a monster. Mate, he's a monster. And if anything, he's got bigger because he's, yeah, he's a professional he's bodybuilder. Right. He was, you know, the old Camp Russell gym was a few egos getting around there, but he was warming up on people's max just for fun. So. <laughs> just him uh, and Corey Jones. Yeah. Oh, mate, I reckon he, yeah, that's a fight I'd love to see. <laughs> so, but, um, if you're yeah, listening, no, Corey. Getting, uh, that big fella on the bird, but I'm glad we did. So, Yeah, mate, which we, we'll definitely touch on down the track. Uh, you know, that, that story, I'd love to 
hear your side of the story. Obviously, Joe was out of it, so yeah. Anyway, mate, let's let's crack off right from the start, mate. Let's get to find out uh, where young Dave Parker grew up and how you were at school, siblings. We spoke about it in the intro, what led to you joining the Defence Force. So let's let's start off from right from the start. Yeah, mate, I was um I was born in down country Victoria, down the Great Ocean Road, a little town called Warnable, which um not too many people have heard of, but uh I born down there, you know, working class parents. Um I was one of four or five siblings, so I had four brothers and a, an older sister who was quite a bit older than me, so she kept us all in tow. Um normal, you know, good, stable family growing up, you know, cousins are in a corner, grandparents out the road. Um a lot of liberties living in a small country, you know, seaside town. We grew up, you know, just riding the bikes around, spearfishing, go out rabbit shooting, you know, do, doing all the good stuff that you get to do um, when you're not supervised and there's no tech to sort of bog you down. So, Yeah, right. So you were born in uh, 79. You were number four out of five. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah, that was it. Mum and dad had a bit of a break between me and my next brother and so there was about a seven-year gap there. So. Yep. You know, there's all jokes around the family that I'm not meant to be here. But, <laughs> then I had a little brother after me and he's still here. So, um, yeah, but that was good because I sort of had that, those older siblings to look up to and sort of, you know, keep me in tow and sort of guide me through life, which is, you know, we still do today. We all help each other out. So, yeah, right. Family life. And you all went to the same school? Uh, yeah, we did. Yeah, never at the same time. I think I got to school as my brother exited each time. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I was always the oldest at school. I was generally the oldest at home because I think most of my siblings left home when I was sort of 17. So um, I was always the big guy of the house. So, yeah. Yeah, right. And how how did you go to school? Were you uh, academically sound or just didn't apply yourself? I think I ticked the prereqs for being on Zero Limits podcast by being (laughs) on pretty shit. (laughs) It's crazy, (laughs) isn't it? Yeah. I'm not stupid. Yeah. it was just hard to find the relevance in school back then. I was I was good in my hands, you know. I was next to my dad growing up, you know, in the shed making things. All my brothers had. Oh, my older brother had a trade. Um, I love woodwork. I love working with my hands, and I was failing to see the relevance in school. Um, at sort of that middle sort of school, my dad got quite sick and passed away, so I was left, you know, a little bit, bit rogue, bit unguided. Um, but sort of found my way in the trade sector, and um, I ended up leaving school to do a trade. Oh, did you? Uh, yeah. What year yeah. was it? What year was that? Oh, that was ninety five. Yeah, ninety five. Yeah, I got a furniture making apprenticeship with a local old guy who was an absolute craftsman at what he did. So, you know, it was just one on one learning how to make reproduction antique furniture, and I really enjoyed it. And you know, I've always loved work, and I loved the satisfaction of seeing something to completion. Um, you know, from idea to a product or a service. And then, um, yeah, I just love working with him. I love working with Wood. And, yeah, I completed that apprenticeship. And, yeah, it got me out of school, um, which was good. So yeah. A few other incidents got me out of school a bit earlier than what I expected. But <laughs> Mum done the righty and got me back in, but it sort of paid off in my later careers. Like, well, I think these days we'd be in jail, but me and a mate were <laughs> making and peddling homemade explosives at school. So <laughs> ruined a school swimming sports carnival with a cracker and a oh, change no. room. But, you know, that got us a couple of weeks off school. But, um, but you know, paid off in the long run with work. Yeah. Um, yeah, but my sort of first boss become a real mentor to me. He was, he was quite a bit older than me. He was probably older than my parents. So 
Um, I think I was his last apprentice before he retired. So it was just a good little, good male influence in my life after losing dad. So Yeah, right, mate. And it, was there any uh, previous history within your family for the military, like granddads or anything? No. no, there wasn't. So if I was bad at school, my brother made me look like a, a professor. <laughs> <laughs> my older brother joined the army in 1989, which was, you know, that was, you know, prison, you know, lose yourself or go to the army and he just randomly joined the army and like we've got no prior family history um my granddad um he was an essential trade during the war so he he was a fitter and turner so he didn't um serve he hung around and made aircraft clear um airstrips and what have you during the war so no previous history and except my older brother and because he was quite a bit older than me he joined you know i was only i was only 10 when he joined so i was just blown away by having a brother in the army who Sent us like bits of rat packs and cam cream and <laughs> a bit of range produce for us to play with and that. So um, we loved it. You know, when you're a kid, you're growing up and playing war and playing army, it was just awesome just having a bit of real kit here and there. And he, he became a real influence in me joining the army. I just saw the, the brotherhood he had from his mates. Um, he was up in two RAR or two four back then. He went to Somali with one RAR. So he had sort of. Yeah, right. Um, and. Probably the pivotal moment there where I saw the real brotherhood form was um, when my dad got sick, uh, Al had just got back from Somalia and um, a couple of his mates come down and took their leave with us um, just to support him. So I was like, they gave up their sort of BRL to hang out with my brother and support him. So, um, you know, I've become great mates with those guys and I still am friends with them. So I saw, you know, that sort of mateship is sort of what I saw out of joining the Army. So, yeah, or I saw that sort of comradeship at such a young age, I thought, yeah, that's what I want to be a part of one day. So Yeah, right. But I yeah. sort of parked that idea while I did my apprenticeship. So Yeah. Yeah. J- yeah. Just just going back quickly, just for the listeners, I just want to note that you said you were playing Army as a kid and you never played Air Force or played Navy, did you? No, no, no. I played Army. I just, <laughs> no one plays Navy or Air Force. Didn't give my mate shit in case someone else needed it, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think you said to one of the other boys, no one plays the, the signal or the QE. Everyone plays the gun. <laughs> so, that's it, mate. Yeah, exactly. and that's what we did, you know. We, we went around, we shot each other, sometimes with air rifles. <laughs> you know, it was a bit like a hunger game sometimes. but Setting booby you know, traps. Pretty serious. So, yeah. But that's what you do when you've got brothers and cousins out in the country. You've got, you know, a lot of free reign to get yourself in trouble. But I think it's that sort of upbringing and skills that, Sort of that, you know, from a young age, they transfer across into soldiering, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, right. So you you finish your apprenticeship. So you quit year 11, you do your apprenticeship. How long is the apprenticeship? Four years? Three, four, four years? Four years, yep. yeah. Yep. I got a – it was pretty tough economical times back then, 99, um, for that industry. Uh, you know, there's a lot of industrial action up in the wharves and what have you, so supply was hard. Um, and – my boss released me early from the apprenticeship. Like you could do three and a half years because just, you know, he just couldn't afford to keep me on at such high wages of, you know, 300 bucks a week or whatever it was back then. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I took early release and sort of found myself, well, I'm going to have to find a job. So um, I sort of went went looking around, did a bit of labouring here and there. Um, it was pretty hard to start my own sort of furniture making business because you need a lot of capital and machinery. So, yeah, that's where I went sort of hunting around and, Funny enough, I reached back to one of my brother's mates who I met when I was just a young lad um, who was now in the film industry. Um, and, you know, I just saw what Matt was doing. He lived in Sydney. You could see the harbour from his front 
you know, we know him, McMahon's Point or wherever he was living at the time. Um, I just saw the rock star life he was living outside of the army. The army was still sort of on the cards, but, yeah. you know, it was, it was a peacetime army, so there was nothing interesting going on. Um, so I reached out to Matt, and Matt said, I'll give you a job if you you have to get yourself a medium rigid truck license. And, like, it was about 1200 bucks back then. <laughs> and I didn't have 1200 bucks, but, um, yeah, the Army Reserve was paying you two grand to go to Kapuka and <laughs> all the bells and whistles they put on the brochure. So I'm like, Matt got his truck license in the Pioneer platoon in mm. before I asked. So I'm like, well, maybe I can do that. So. Yeah. So you you joined the defence force on the on the hunt for a truck license. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And obviously, I had the aptitude to go to infantry. So um, yeah, I got a res entry into infantry. Um, yeah, went to Kapuka and just I was just winging it. I really was winging it. I left left my job. I had no cash. Got to Kapuka and it was like phew, three feeds a day. You know, this is good. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. What did what'd your brother say? Um, he, he was living overseas at the time. He bagged me out for being a choco, you know, yeah. straight up. I'm <laughs> like, cool. I don't know what I'm doing. I've, I've just joined, you know. So he bagged me out a little bit there. Um, yeah, but, you know, obviously I was pretty proud that I joined. So yeah. I was the second person in our family history to join a defence force. So, you know, it was like we started a bit of a family tradition. So, um, he was pretty proud of me. I was, you know, always eager to please and made sure I could, um, you know, live up to his expectations and standards. So, yeah, you know, I, I just applied myself as hard as I could at Kapuka. There was a few guys who were instructors at Kapuka that were his mates from 2-4 as well. So, you know, my brother had a reputation, whether it be good or bad, but, you know, the name tag sort of gave it away sometimes. So, um, yeah, so I bumped into a few guys that were his mates from 1-2-4. and two, four. So, um, yeah, so I was just eager to please and just do well. Yeah, right. So, you like, throughout, throughout that, you know, six and a bit weeks at Kapuka, how'd you find it? You were- I, fit in well? Yeah, fit in well. I had a really good crew. Obviously, having a little bit of an intro to the defence and hanging around some really good influential guys, I sort of knew what to expect. Um, you know, I knew what I knew what a pogue was before I got to the army. Like <laughs> I said. And I'd been warned out about it. So, you know, when you're getting screamed at from some Rayot guy, you know, as a warrior's guy in the world, I could sort of see through the facade and just play the game. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and I think all the guys that were in my platoon were infantry. We sort of we were better than them already. That's yeah. sort of, and you know, so we um, yeah, you know, we just played the game and just did it. Like it was sometimes it was just pure entertainment. You know, watching guys. You know, I, I thrived off seeing guys just peel off and leave. So, you know, because I felt like, hang on, I'm better than that guy. I can do this. So. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So you finished Kapuka, and uh, where? Sorry, where are you living? Are you still down in Melbourne? Um, at the time, I was still living in Warrnambool. I was. Warrnambool. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, but um, I was pretty much homeless. I just packed all my stuff into a storage shed, um, out on my sister's farm, and then just went to Kapuka. So. Yeah. Right. So where'd you where'd you go once you left Kapuka? Um. Well, so one and back while I was at Kapuka, um. East Timor kicked off like while like midway through Kapuka and so Interfet. So, you know, everyone was going nuts because it was the first time the army was deploying, like, you know, work was stopping. It was like, I know, I remember watching the like Gulf the Gulf War invasion on TV. Yeah. Everyone at Kapuka was the same. And, you know, the instructors were carrying on like it was, 
you know, like they were going to ditch us and go to war because it was like it was like Singapore had fallen again for them. Um, <laughs> then we realised, like, you're you're a pay clerk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You'll probably go, but um, you know. So and then it was just on. It was like, well, if anyone wants to transfer the IRA, now's the time to do it. So I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, now something's happening in the army. This is interesting. So um, I just signed on for the IRA. Um, and probably my first sort of intro to the army uh, admin chain. I, I thought it was going to be switched, but it wasn't. So <laughs> signed on, went RRA. Um, I was out of cycle to go to straight from Kapuka to Singo. So I went home for like, I think I had 10 days leave in between, which was cool. Or it wasn't leave. I just was at Choco still. So um, I went back down home to Warrnambool and just, you know, skinhead, telling worries, <laughs> drinking, and then I just went straight to Kapuka. So I oh, was straight to Singo from there. Yeah, right. That's actually a pretty good uh, – still like as, as bad as the, the Army paperwork is, you transferred from Chocos to f- regs within Kapuka, which is pretty quick. Well, That's a pretty yeah, quick turnaround. Pretty quick. I, the transfer wasn't through, but they were able to just panel me on all the, yeah, all the courses. Yeah. So, but um, they made it happen pretty quick, which is cool. You know, yeah. So maybe that all the pogs I had him teach me was a good thing. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. squared, so, yeah, but um, yeah, so it was pretty quick. Um, and yeah, and then I just arrived at uh, Singo with yep. some of the guys who were at Kapuka sort of 10 days behind me. So Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah right. So, yeah, so you get your 10 days back at home, you tell them more stories about Kapuka. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and then, yep uh, then you're on a plane and uh, up to Singo or bus. Either yeah, way. yeah. I actually flew. It was pretty cool. Yeah. Flew up at Singo, um, arrived at Singo and then just, yeah, once again, it was back when it was six, seven weeks. So, um, but yeah, once again, I was just, I was just frothing for it. And, uh, you know, we got into, got into Singo and our whole platoon was all, all one of our guys, um, all the um, instructors. And the whole platoon was penciled in to go to one hour. So they had a pretty invested interest in the platoon. Um, all of them had been to Somalia. Um, and then one of them was a guy from Perth as well. Um, so we had like five corporals for four sections sort of thing. Yeah, shit. Um, so we had a really stacked bunch of instructors, um, who took it pretty serious. We, we respected them because most of them had, you know, they'd all been to Somalia. They'd all had, you know, combat experience or, um, you know, operational experience, which was really rare back then. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, now we just hit that sweet spot where guys who were junior enough to go to, um, Somalia, but senior enough to be in the instructor world, you know, sort of just taking us out of that Vietnam era, which was, you know, this has taken me a long time to realise that, but in retrospect, it's like, you know, it's hard to find that, you know. It only happens a few times, you know, every 20 years or so. Like yeah. you know, right now we're probably running out of guys at Singo that have had operational experience. in. Sort no, of we would be, yeah. So yeah. Just, just hitting that period, you realise the importance, uh, importance of experience and, um now, it took me years to realise the importance of that, but, um, you know, I really, really feel uh, privileged that I had guys with operational experience and my instructors that set me up really well. Yeah, exactly. And, fuck, yeah. like, like you're just saying, like that period from probably, say, you know, 2000, 2015, all the command structure in Singo were fucking warfighters, essentially, oh, yeah. fucking warfighters, yeah. which is crazy. Yeah, you, you're going like a sub two for sergeant and – all the corporals are just stacked with trips from across the RAR and like SOCOM and, you know, you got, you know, some 60-year-old woe with a Coca-Cola and a Paramatic <laughs> on trying to tell you how it is and everyone's like, mate, well, that's how, you know, it was. Yeah, that's cool. It was, it was amazing to see yeah. sort of, 
that that experience just rolling straight exactly. into the training cycle. And, you know, I think young guys in the Army now should be absolutely be a sponge to a lot of these guys. So any little bit of experience just goes a long way. So. Yeah, exactly. And, like, you've probably seen it throughout uh, 2 Commando, even in the RAR, even the, the Army in general, how the equipment has, you know, changed even for the regular grunts now. Like, they're – fuck, the kit's amazing. Mate, I know. Like, you were probably in 3 when the Pac-Man was around. <laughs> Our kit back then, that was just – you just sat around the Pac-Man and you, you made your own kit. Yeah, sewed shit like, on you, and, yeah. You chucked a – Gun in the back of you went down there and he made a pouch. You know, like he'd make your body arm around the plate. You know, like that sort of. That's what we had to do because we didn't have a kit. Yeah, you know, the coolest yeah. you could get was five minimum pouches. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so then they had that Lamb One Two Five stuff that come out. Oh yeah, I think more people ended up casualties of the Leatherman cutting the zip ties <laughs> off than they did yeah. any more. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, yeah. Absolutely crazy. So, Singo, so you were in uh, Singo. Again, did you chat with your brother at this stage? And obviously he's quickly – Yeah, I was chatting quick... with him every now and again. Like this was – I don't think I even had a mobile phone. Um, but, you know, I'd just jump on the phone. But he was living in Scotland at the time actually. So yeah, I'd just shit. Jump, jump on the phone and I like, hadn't just <laughs> feed the dollar coins in like that <laughs> and just have a yak to him here and there. Letters were still a thing, you know. You got yeah. letters sent here and – he knew the game of like when you kapook when you had to open your mail in front of everyone. So he, yeah, yeah, good there, you know. Like, <laughs> of, uh, you know <laughs> questionable items were sent in the mail, <laughs> dropping out on the floor in a hallway and whatnot. Yeah. So yeah, he knew what he was doing there. Classic. So, um, yeah, it was still letters back then. You know, I've still got all those letters. You know, so, yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah, nice. And so, how did you how did you find you know how did you find singer? Obviously, said you enjoyed kapooka. Now it's uh, infantry tactics. No more, no more fucking pay clerks or folding blankets. It's- yeah, Singo was Singo was awesome because obviously having good platoon staff was good, but having that focus of like Timor was in well good swing now. You know, like Manning for subsequent trips was talked about. You know, so one RAR sort of knew that they were going to be going in the end of the next year. So everyone sort of had something to focus on. It's like, hang on, this is you now we could be using this training soon. We didn't still didn't know. Like we were young. Infantry guys, we thought we're going to be rolling up the T and I, you know, like, um, you know, we'd stop fight talking about Missourians, we're talking about real enemies. So, um, you know, everyone was really focused. It was good time of the year in Singer. It was sort of October to December. Um, so the weather was just beautiful. You know, the good old, you know, Singer, like nearly on the weekends. Yeah. You know, you heading out with beers with your platoon staff, you were just you felt like you're more of a team and more in the army. So yeah. Yeah, so it was good. I th- I thrived on Singer. Yeah. And then from there, obviously you're posted up to one hour? No. So sorry. This is when army admin kicked in. Like when it come time for the Oh that's right, because you, you sorry, you, you didn't have a a posting. You were just no, Yeah, no, gotcha, just, gotcha. Posting orders were struck ages ago, so I didn't have a posting. So we got to the end of Singo, and I wasn't going to be getting posted to one RAR. And, you know, so I was going through the transfer from ARES still. So they just said, look, it's not going to go through now. So I just went and I think it was just before Christmas. So I just went went home back to Warrnambool for the summer. Uh, I probably jagged it all right because all the boys went up and pumped out rear details for four weeks because um, I had no leave. But, um, I went back down hoping I'd go up to one hour with all the guys. But um and then yeah, I ended up back in back home waiting for the transfer to come through and it come through sort of early, late January, um, while I was back home. And then uh 
by then I got told I'm not going to sing it. I'm not going to one hour. I've got to go to four hour. I'm like, who, where, what? Sydney? I didn't know there was army in Sydney. You know, like, <laughs> I, I thought there was only one and two hour because that's all I'd heard from the boys at Singo. So um, I heard about a Brisbane thing, but nothing about Sydney. So um, I was going to four hour and I knew nothing about it. So. Yeah, right. So you arrive in four, early 2000? Yeah, early 2000. I think it was, I spent February 2000. Yeah, I just arrived there out of cycle, but um, sort of at that time, they were starting to load four hour up with guys straight from IET. So there'd been probably about oh, a small platoon arrive about the same time I did. Um, and a few guys just at the end of the sort of year, uh, before like 99 and then there was another platoon coming in and like getting quite a big intake from Singo over the next six months so yeah so I just arrived there out of cycle and just joined a platoon of all new guys that had just joined the infantry and were posted there or guys who were transferred from ARES so it was a bit of a mixed bag and yeah we had a platoon and platoon staff and we were just getting into it straight away so yeah. Yeah right and then uh, you know going back to say 98, 97, 98 when Muzz you know, basically, you would on the first uh, selection course. How, like, how does how did that roll into you guys coming well, to? Muzz, funny enough, was a lance jacket in that first platoon I was in, so he was one of the two ICs. So, um, you know, he was amongst the first sort of handful of you know guys that I'd actually met in the real army. So, yeah, um, yeah. So that's sort of where me and Muzz first crossed paths. So, um, he was a yeah, he was a two IC in Charlie Company uh, for uh, where we were, and we. You know, upon getting there, we learned that the commando thing was happening and, you know, Bravo Company was a commando company. We were just a, a shit dude. So, um, but the idea was to qualify us up, so we just we just got smashed. You know, it was like a it was like a selection every day. You know, we got kid checks. We got all the things you could dream of in selection, but just every day when you're living in the lines, you just get dragged out of bed at any old time. And, yeah, it was like a never-ending selection for the next sort of four or five months, so. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then uh, just reading your bio, you broke your leg. Yeah. So um, so the way it sort of worked back then, you, you just got trained up. You got, you know, stuffed rations into you. You did heaps of additional training just to try and upskill you. We did boating, roping, all the things that they're expecting the commando capability to do. But um, under the guidance of guys who already qualified, like Muzz and uh, a few other sort of names, um, yeah, and eventually I got – you know, fit enough, strong enough, and attempted selection. Um, I went on the selection course. Oh, we well, did a barrier test back then, like a four-day barrier to get on selection. Um, so I did that, got on the selection, and about midway through it, I um, yeah, I broke my leg just doing night navigation or something stupid like that. And um, yeah, tried to keep going, but just yeah, had to pull off due to injury. So yeah, which was you know disappointing. But I'd only been in the unit for six months. I'd only been in the full-time army for six months and I was on selection. We've done a lot of training leading up to it. We are fit as hell. But, um, you know, a lot of guys subsequently failed that selection just due to inexperience. So um, then some guys who had just been in the army a few months had passed it. So it was, you know, that's what selection was back then. It was tough. It was run by... Uh, was run by an old guy called Hans Fleer, who a lot of people would know. Uh, So he was one of the... Everyone probably read Phantoms of the Jungle if you didn't. Yeah, didn't yeah. yeah. So, yeah. You know, Hounds is one of the original sort of SASR um, Vietnam guys, and he was just – he had a real presence. You know, he was you – know, he'd just pop up like 
you know, Marlon Brando and Apocalypse Now cammed up in the bush around you, you know, so, <laughs> you know, assessing you and everyone, you know, he had a real presence when he came in the room. So he was the SI, so the course was hard. Um, we got flogged and, yeah, I enjoyed it right up until, you know, I was off. So, yeah. Yeah, right. But that's it. Plenty of other people got injured on it as well. So, yeah, it was a robust selection. So Yeah, yeah, right. That selection is sort of. You know, so the guys that were on that selection back then, and they're they're the core of the command now. You know, that's it's going back a few years now, but you know, so yeah, some of those guys are still in and still around. So yeah, obviously you break your leg, and then you you know obviously one HSB up uh, in Holsworthy Barracks, uh, just kicking back and eating jelly and relaxing, and obviously physio and all that type of shit. Uh, how long how long was that? There was none of that. that oh, wasn't was, there none of it? No, uh, that was. You know, I just got. I think like a duty driver, like some truck oh, did you? back from Holdsworth <laughs> from Singo, drops you off and Stitched you're back up. into it and you limp around. Uh, I borrowed a pushy, rode up to one HSB for an x-ray, got the x-ray, rode back, yep, it's broken and that was it. It was just some gung-ho medic just put three inches of plaster all around my leg and I just sat and played Mario Kart for the next sort of six <laughs> weeks so, and got called a malingerer. You know, like that's what yeah. it was back then. Yeah. There was no... There was no real physio until I got out of the plaster cast and even that was minimal because you had to get back to work. So. Yeah, still called yeah. a malingerer the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I remember getting punished for having a broken leg. I'm like, what do I do? You know, like, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's funny. I did I did my shot out of reconstruction. I'm in a sling and it got that bad where I was called a malingerer every single day. I'm like, fuck you, cunts. I'm, I'm going outfield. So I ended up going outfield, like running a mortar X with a sling. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's what you had to do. Unless you were dying, you worked. So you know, <laughs> within your limitations, and you didn't want to cheat because that would a chit's like a a death warrant. Yeah, so, unless it was a no shaving chit. Yeah. Oh no, you wouldn't even pull a chit out. Like, that would, you know, <laughs> like, oh, body bomb. So, <laughs> yeah, but no, that was it. It was just yeah. I think I did that, and because I, you know, was still a bit crippled, I finally. Achieved my goal of the military and got put on like a rover and a mod course. So <laughs> that's it, yeah. That's it. Yeah. Tick I've discharge. <laughs> so you know, but then I, I think for the next probably thirteen years, I was the only guy with a coaster license in the army. I reckon. So, <laughs> a coaster yeah. license, yeah, right. Coaster and a mod license. So you know, I drove mods right up until <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, and that was it. And then by then, when we were going to East Timor, so the focus had shifted from. Instead of getting guys to across the line as commandos, um, it was just get ready for Timor. So that's what we did. We just refocus and, you know, four RAR, you know, the brakes got put on raising the commando capability for it just be go across as an infantry battalion uh, to Timor. So yeah, right. That's what we geared up to do. I think I ended up doing like a DFSW course because, you know, sustained fire machine guns is what we needed in East Timor in 2001. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, I went to Heavy Weapons and uh, we rolled out to East Timor. So, yeah, right. um, in about April the following year. Yeah, and how'd you, uh, how'd you find that? Obviously, your first deployment, uh, you know, World War no, Timor. It was, we landed on our feet there. We got, we were down at Ida Balletton, down on the beach. So, um, I think one of the guys, uh, Birdo, who was our, our ink guy at the time, Sean Burton, he's quite an accomplished artist now. He's brilliant, but, um, Birdo done up these T-shirts of uh, Colonel Kilgore from um, Oculus <laughs> now with Charlie Dudson, yeah. Charlie Company on it. And uh, 
I think he also made a pun. He put flies and insects all over the sleeves because he had to have the long sleeves. And so we already sort of put a bias on ourselves that we we're going to swim at the beach. So we've done a lot of swimming at the beach. Um, we've done a lot of hard work, a lot of long patrolling, um, a lot of time out at checkpoints and what have you. But yeah. as a young infantryman who, you know, my focus was fully on, you know, I got a truck license tick next. The focus on was becoming a commando, you know, for the commando capability because it was exciting back then. So, um, so that was good training. You know, we took our field craft serious, um, had a really good section of dudes, um, you know, still mates with most of those guys today. Um, yeah, we took, took the trip serious. We worked hard and, um, yeah, and it was good. Nothing happened. It was benign as hell. You know, I think the most exciting thing was, oh, it was like a flare or something once, <laughs> like four Blackhawks with the dudes and, <laughs> you know, there, not much happened. Um, you know, you got to go down onto the border and you could see the Indons on the other side. Yeah. Have you? You know, that was about as exciting as it got. And yeah, but it was just good times. It was good young soldier and count your dollars every day, spending your money at the front line truck when it come around and mm. yeah, swimming at the beach, tanning gym and infantry work, which was good. So even though it was benign, it kept you focused, you know. Yeah. It was, it was practice for us. It was training to become a commando. Now, yeah. now during this time, obviously 9-11, September 11, 2001, defining moment in everyone's career and obviously Absolutely. yours and obviously you're in Timor. So, you know, run us through this day and – you know, again, it changed your life down the track, yeah. so. It, it absolutely did. You know, like, I think a lot of people see it as a throwaway line that 9-11 changed their life, but for a lot of guys in the Army back then, it absolutely did, you know. Um, we were out on a junction point down on the border. I think it was Sparrow or like a small little LZ, you know, like one of those Hesco walls around an old school, you know, oil burner shitters and stuff like that. Um, and we had some... Uh, tankies come up in the uh, carriers just to t- give us a reset, and they just said, "Oh, look, the the Muslims have declared a jihad. They just crashed planes into the twin towers." And I'm like, "The who declared a what?" And the <laughs> planes in the way, like we're like, "What the fuck's a Muslim? You know, what's a jihad?" We didn't know what that was. Yeah. Um, and they go, "The Indonesians are Muslims." And I'm like, "Oh fuck!" You know, like as a young digger, like you know, Warnable's not a. You know, I didn't even know what rugby league was or mm. rugby was. That's how sheltered you are. <laughs> and, um, you know, to hear all these words and what was happening. And then they're, they're trying to explain, you know, to us what was happening for 9 11 because we couldn't see it. Um, we could hear a little bit on the old battle training afterwards, transistor radio. Mm. So, yeah. Um, that, yeah, clear that up yeah, for the listeners. Training these days. Yeah. <laughs> you might actually have one in your section. So, um, <laughs> you might want to get into that. No, I'll keep that. I'll keep um, it. <laughs> that's a good but, one. You know, like trying to explain to us that these Muslim guys that we hadn't heard of had crashed two planes into two skyscrapers and into the Pentagon. It's It sounded like they were explaining. We thought they'd watched bloody, you know, Collateral or something. Or I didn't even know it was out back then, but, you know, mm. it sounded like mm. a movie. It wasn't until a day or two later that we actually went back in through Balibo, through battalion headquarters, we got to ransack the mess. We actually got to see it on TV and we're like, what the? And um, things spun up pretty quickly for us over there. Obviously, um, I think there was a there was a Perth element over there, and well, they just pulled up stumps and left the country, uh, from my memory. Um, and then we got told that you know four hours going to have to pick up the slack. Um, it was always talked about domestic counterterrorism, but then they said 
we've got to take over domestic counterterrorism in six months. We need guys to go back. And like that's how quick it happened. And um, whether you're commando qualified or not, um, they just grab guys out of each company to go back and start prepping. Um, if you're commando qualified, you start prepping to go on the, the first sort of CQB courses Perth are running, or you go back and try and qualify as a commando to, you know, we, we had to just get guys back home and get things happening. So um, so I think my Timor trip ended probably a few weeks to a month early than what it was meant to, just so they could get guys back to Australia. So, yeah, so it spun up pretty quick for our unit. So, And then that life had changed. We weren't, you know, everything past that point was an unknown. Yeah, yeah, ex- right. exactly. So, so, you, so you get obviously you get back to Holsworthy and you crack on with selection and your Rio early 2003, and then obviously early 2003, the Iraq War starts well, ramping up. We had 2002, so we had... Yeah, oh, sorry, yeah, 2002 as well, yeah. A huge year for the unit. Um, we had sort of, you know, our best got put forward to go on the original CQB courses that Perth ran, and they were brutal. Like, guys were coming back just as defeated humans, you know, they were totally unprepared for it. Other guys thrived in it. So, and, you know, and there was a, a bit of ego there, you know, like, Tag was all that was happening for, you know, all throughout the 90s and 80s. That was it. Black Rolls was it. And it was a premier role. Um, I remember seeing the guys when we were at the, you know, the 2000 Olympics in Sydney. Uh, we were at the outer cordon for them. We just saw these guys as guides and for the opportunity for our regiment to sort of, or our unit back then to take those roles was pretty good. So, um, yeah, guys got crucified on those first few courses. And, you know, like there was, I think the original sort of nine or ten blokes become sort of the pillar of our our unit after that, you know. So, um, but that that happened in two thousand two. But parallel to that, we was trying to stand up the full time commando capability as well. So, anyone that was in the unit, whether you're qualified or not, was working towards that. And so you'd have mixed bag teams of guys who were done all the courses to be qualified. They'd be partially qualified, um, all just working together just to try and validate the unit as a, you know, validate a whole commando capability. So, you know, it was heavily focused on amphibious, like regional, so amphibious airborne operations, um, you know, with that sort of direct action, airfield seizure sort of mission set. And um, that's all we did all year. You know, it was everyone went and done para courses, whether you were commando or not, um, in it. Everyone's work. It was like... I liken it now to have been like in a startup company where everyone just does everything. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Work it out and you get a bit of funding and you can actually employ real people to start that. So <laughs> that's, what, that's I draw that analogy now for a lot of people. It was, it was working in a startup company. You know, just who can do this? Yeah, I can, cool, do it. Yeah, um, just in that planning, figure out everyone. stage. And, you know, mind you, we didn't get paid any extra back then. I think the best you could get if you had a support company course was pay group five and para pay. So that's what everyone was trying to get you know it was there wasn't any magical 30 grand pay packet that popped up if you were qualified everyone just did it because they were intrinsically motivated to um be a part of you know this revenge from 9-11 and by then you know barley bombings happened later on that year yeah, as well exactly. so that sparked everyone's motivation even further so to be a part of that was just the sort of people you breed in that environment are just intrinsically motivated just to get the job done and no matter what, like no one no one went home early, no one bludged out of work. You know, it was just work the whole time. There was no breezeways. There was 
it was solid work and we're getting a lot of funding as well then so um yeah we saw a lot of new weapons and equipment start rolling in and it was i think it was a pivotal year in in so command and and for four hour in its infancy so as we raised and in that year we validated that first uh tag east got validated and then you know several months later the first sort of full-time commando capability was signed off as good to deploy good to go and that company deployed to um iraq or you know elements of that company not long after i was um i was doing my rio still like um during that so i missed out on that gig but i ended up doing rio and yeah and rest is history so yeah so just just obviously the touch of uh, early 2003 how was the selection in rio or how was your rio obviously as we know now the rio is pretty it's well established now obviously you're going through the they're still making it type yeah thing. it was it got a lot better like i did my selection towards the end of 02 um so I had a bit of an ask about year i got back from team or did sub one for corporal you know like a few other things para and you know, they sort of flipped around who did what and I was lucky because they did run they ran one middle of the year that was called like an easy selection uh, you know no one it was just a funny course that was run and I'm really glad I didn't do that because a lot of guys always did that selection um the one I did you know everyone done the hardest one if you ask them but the one I did was pretty robust but what made it was all the guys that I was on it with were all of my Charlie company mates so I'd, we'd known each other for two years you know, there was probably half a dozen guys from around the battalions on it, and that was about it. But it was a real solid crew who had been working together a long time. Um, and we knew a lot of the instructors, which made it even worse for us because they're like, yeah, we got flogged. It was it was hard. I think it was Singo later in the year. I think we, we ended up having like the hottest day on record, the coldest day on record, the <laughs> wettest, and the 2002 bushfires come through. So that's when, you know, Holesworthy got raised. Yeah. Wattle Grove was on fire. We're all hearing about Wattle Grove's on fire. We got, you know, families at home and stuff. And then we got, well, you know, you've been to the stud farm out there before? Yeah, 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 yeah. So we're out at the stud farm, which is, it's just crap. And, you know, bushfire raking towards us, helicopter bombers, the portaloos are on fire and there's shit everywhere. And <laughs> we've got our backs to a coaster waiting to get evacuated. Like we're, you know, two and a half weeks in the selection and, I think the truck he had a – he'd lost his fuel cap, so he had like a big rag hanging out the fuel oh, cap. Fuck. It's like a block it. It's like, mate, we're about to drive through a bush trying a Molotov cocktail. But, <laughs> you know, so we had everything. It was like um, – it was like they'd booked the – you know, booked it for us, you know. We got every bit of sort of environmental thing thrown at us, but it also it was hard. But, um, but it was good. I thoroughly enjoyed it and – it was just really good being with such a tight bunch of guys already because, you know, no one would pull off to let each other out down or, you know, we all helped each other out and got through it. And, you know, I went through my whole career with some of those guys. So, um, you know, so we spent the next sort of 20 years together so, and we're good mates now. So um, really solid crew. Yeah. So I loved it. Selection was awesome. Um, plus that added focus of we had a company on, you know, just about to go to Iraq, so we, yeah, we'll be going pretty. All you needed to go to Iraq was a para course, commando selection, and a beret, and that's what we were going to be buried at the end of that back then. So there's a good chance we could have gone to Iraq. So it was, it was on. So that focus level of focus while you were there that was fantastic. So actually, some guys 
on my selection to go to Iraq, like SIGs and stuff like that, who were, you know, essential trades. As soon as they got that beret, they were off. So, um, yeah, but, you know, having that sort of mission focus in your training is it makes you lift the game a bit, I think. So, Yeah, right, yeah, right. So, yeah, you know, the rest of 2003, the, the unit itself is just still growing and uh, branching out in every every which direction and trying to get more people qualified. Uh, 2004 comes along, and where, where's TAG at this stage? Are they, they, is there a so company TAG, set up? It, TAG was pretty well established early 03, and they were starting to run regular CGB courses, and uh, they were running – mostly they were all running Perth still because, you know, we hadn't qualified our own supervisors, and, you know, it, it takes a long time to breed a capability. Um, so it was still running Perth. Um, a lot of Perth instructors, some of our guys were going through doing their instructors tickets and what have you. Um, so guys were starting to trickle in and do that, um, sort of, you know, oh, you know, end of 02, 03, they'd run a few courses and guys were starting to feed through. And I think, um, you know, they'd only trickle in like a few guys at a time. You know, they trickle in like a junior guy and they were actually just building the teams up rather than just trickling guys out. And it wasn't until probably mid-2003 where guys actually started to come. They'd been on tag for a year and they come back down to the companies. And um, once again, that's where we just saw the capabilities go up. Like, you know, that the work ethic that the guys brought down, the the way that they trained and what have you, bringing that back down into sort of the green roles, we just lifted everyone's game again. So um, everyone sort of reinvested, which was it was good. So, you know, once again, we had guys that had you know, high-end sort of CGB skills, you know, for the day, um, coming back in the platoons just to teach us. So it was good. So Yeah, and then obviously you guys would have been uh, building up for the Com Games. Oh, yeah, that, was, that wasn't that was even on the horizon. I think TAG was – 03, I think TAG were doing like the Rugby World Cup. You know, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, right. Even before that, and that was probably the first sort of hit out that they did was um, – they, I wasn't on tag then, but they went and did the you – know, supported the Rugby World Cup in uh, Sydney. So, and then, uh, you know, we had we had other things happening that year. We, we validated a second commando company. So half the blokes that validated the first one were on the next one as well. So that was one of the major exercises up in Townsville we did. Um, it was pretty memorable. We, I think we had to, we had to validate a, an amphibious uh, – it was a parachute RV, so we'd parachute in off the horizon, set up our boats and RV, I think it was the Canimbler at the time. Um, you know, our boats were better than it. So, <laughs> but, um, you know, but I think the weather was against us. We ended up dropping, uh, we didn't even get the follow-on force out. Like, there was, I think, 16 of us made it out the door on the para-jump, you know, 30-plus knot winds, sea state <laughs> four, <laughs> got smashed to bits putting the boats together and, you know, limped all the boats back out to the Canimbler and, but, you know, if we didn't do that, that was, you know, an early CO taking a bit of risk on us. Um, he didn't have to jump. But, yeah, a lot of guys were a bit dirty on it. But um, we validated the second commando company by taking that sort of risk of, you know, I think we smashed about half the boats, lost half of them and um, lost a lot of uh, parachutes and equipment and what have you. But, um, you know, ticked the box for the second commando company that year, which was another big achievement because now we had two full-time commando companies and a tag and, it was just a bit of a juggernaut by then. Like, you know, I didn't know. No one was getting out, you know, at this stage. Everyone yeah, right. Was still, yeah. It was probably, 
probably mid-03, early-04, where guys started jumping out to do the contracting gig when they realised we weren't Iraq had just ended for SOCOM. So there was, there was no talk of uh, Afghanistan? No, nah, not back then. No, nah, not in 03. Um, there was talk of a second rotation of Iraq. Um, I think training teams went across, but never anything as a, as a whole subunit or a platoon again. So um, once people realised that we'd sort of missed the boat on that, Afghan wasn't even on the horizon. Um, Crazy to think. That's when we saw a lot of guys get out and just do the Baghdad shuffle. and yeah. <laughs> over there for the cash and yeah, mate, get back yeah. in about a year later when they're, fuck. Is it, that's it, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, so 2005, during 2005 again, this is where commandos are just the same thing. It's just a, a a building year again and obviously the London bombings, uh, you know, kind of solidify what's happening in the world. Yeah, sort of. I ended up doing my CQB course in 04 and going up on team. Um, I jumped into a team as a driver, um, you know, so – Jumped up there, did the fast driving course, and just yeah, that it was go. That was like flat out. It was you worked hard, um, you got worked hard as well because you know you got paid thirty grand more than the rest of the unit. So yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, Fuck, that's a decent chunk. The, the old daily renewable contract back then was a real thing because if you stuffed up, you took a thirty grand pay cut and you went, you lost your mobile phone and your Oakleys and you were back down in green rolls. So yeah. Um, it was real and it kept guys really accountable. And, you know, I'd seen a couple of blokes who, you know, were performance managed off or, you know, just couldn't keep up and they just got sent back down and it was demoralising for them. But um, but it just did set a that standard. sort of mindset and yeah. that work ethic was you worked harder and longer. Like it was a competition who would go home last and, like, quite often dudes would just sleep at work because you're so stuffed. So, um and then that was it. We were locked down for the next sort of two years, um, you know, preparing for the Com Games um, and doing the Com Games, which is the biggest thing that we had going. And sneakily in the middle there, Afghan lit up again. So a few guys. So yeah. So 2006, obviously the uh, warning order comes through for the game. Yeah, I think it was. Might have, I think it was earlier than that. I was think it? Yeah, right. It was mid 05, I think, or the end of 05. I think we sent the first sort of commando wasn't even a company i think it might have been been a platoon or with mortars and enablers over that was like rotation one sotg yeah um and then you know two other companies sort of rolled through then we were stuck on team like you know we were the you know everyone there's a bit of a joke between the community now we're all the war dodgers and what have you and so like, well, <laughs> the war dodgers. Know, we were the ones doing the demos that got you the gig and the gans <laughs> <laughs> you know there's a bit of rivalry there like yeah the old yeah Ag fags and whatever they called us. But, um, <laughs> you know, we just joke, well, if you can't have said you'd you would have been here, bro. So, yeah. You know, there was a bit of rivalry there. Um, it was friendly, you know. Like, yeah. But, um, yeah, but, yeah, so most of the guys who did the Com Games, we missed out in the first three rotations of the GAN because we were stuck up on, you know, we were, I don't think we got home from the Com Games until May 2006, but I wouldn't swap that for anything like the guys that were on that Com Games build up and the trips down to Melbourne are just still a really tight bunch of guys. We are, and you know, it's they were the best times I've had in the army. They were, so, yeah, right, yeah, right. Just working hard, playing hard. It was, <laughs> it was good times. You know, the training was just next level. We had an awesome OC, um, an awesome CO. Uh, our CO just he just didn't give a shit what anyone above him thought. And he just took risk and pushed us to our limits and um, put his own ass on the line so we could 
grow the capability, you know. He signed us off to do capabilities that we weren't meant to do and once we'd done it, he said, look, they can do it. So we we picked up jobs as we went. So um, it was good times, really good times for the unit. So um, good bunch of dudes, good training. You know, there was there was training accidents, there was fuck-ups, but it was all part of the learning. That's you know, it, that yeah. Go fast, fail, start again, keep going. So Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Now, 2007, uh, obviously, end of 2006, you get your, your warning order to go again. Yeah. Um, how's, uh, how's it, how you, how you feeling at this stage? It's like, fuck yeah, finally. This is finally. It. Yeah. yeah. It was like, you know, it's funny in later years in life, it was like you bump into a dude, you just put through the Rio and he's three months in the company. No, oh, I'm not getting a trip this year. And it's like, dude, don't talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like all the hard work we'd done in the early 2000s. Um, and then the finally, you know, I even missed out on all the shitty trips. Like the, actually Fiji wasn't a, you know, they, those poor buggers got stuck on the boat. You know, all those little Timor gigs and what have you, we missed out on all them even. Mm. And, uh, to finally get like a um, like an Afghan trip warned out for, it was like, right, this is this is on. So it was, once again, that focus. Everyone's, you know, the boys at work were like like a dog. They sniffed the tennis ball. That's all they want. So um, everyone was just really focused, really good manning, really strong company we had. And um I think we ended up, I was in Bravo Company then, and we ended up doing, a, I think it was Rotation 5 for SOTG. Yep, so yep. Rot 4 was obviously Alpha Company got back in after, you know, we'd been absent from the GAN for that sort of 12-month period. And, um, yeah, they got amongst it pretty early on that trip. And uh, so obviously the focus for us was just, you know, everyone just wanted to get over there and get into it. And we landed, oh, what time of year was it? would have been maybe june or Ju- july like it was in the summer so we hit the ground running so it was awesome trip as my first ki- trip to afghan my first gig as a team commander so it was it was uh pretty good yeah yeah far out and uh obviously you've you've uh, spent a bit of time with the pack man getting your, your kit sorted yeah and actually, then- you know what? we we landed on our feet we actually got issued sword before that rig we were the first oh yeah right issued sword um so obviously i'll Oh, Luke, he's rubbing his hands together that he got that gig. And, uh, <laughs> you know, back in those Melbourne days, we, we'd just hang out at Luke's factory down at Sword, drinking all his beer and eating all his noodles and just helping him make the kit and develop it. Like, you know, yeah. how he developed his kit was just, you know, no one develops kit like that anymore. So, um, you know, we all had a part in developing it. And then to be able to get issued it and take it on ops was, yeah. just, was just solid it was. So we we're pretty lucky. We got two full rigs of Sword and we got, you know, uh, we got sent over with that. So, yeah, the old Pac-Man. Yeah, we didn't need the Pac-Man. That didn't trip. The Pac-Man, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. And then so how was your, your 2007 trip? Obviously, uh, yeah, you know, at that stage there was only one death in Afghanistan, which was Andrew Russell from the yeah, there was. Uh, SSR. Yeah, we'd, um, yeah we'd, there'd been a few guys wounded. Like I think that brought it home pretty quick when Alpha Company, one of their boys got shot in the legs. You know, it was quite a – quite a story in itself for those guys to tell, you know, how they evacuated him and it was a pretty, pretty decent stash. How no one else got shot was just, you know, uh, phenomenal. But seeing one of your own guys actually just get wounded in action mm. home for us and the families that it was real, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't MTF jousting on mountain bikes like the army sort of, you know, <laughs> the army sold it. It was there building schools and handing out lollies in yeah. the newspapers and to the public. Yeah. Seeing a guy, you know, WIA, 
just before our trip, you know, like we're talking to our mates back over there, seeing what we could do to not make that happen. And yeah, we got over there and um, pretty focused, you know, you're inheriting cars that have bullet holes in them. Um, yeah, it was pretty real. And then, uh, yeah, we just got ready to go out on our first, um, it's always a funny story. I still bump into our IC back then and, you know, we called it a nursery patrol and, He's like, no, 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 we never called it a nursery patrol, you know, like a patrol close to home. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Just to shake out. And um, I think we we nudged down into a valley, which every company that's ever gone in there from since the late 70s has got their ass handed to them. So we, I think it's, yeah, everyone who's gone down there has had a shellacking. So <laughs> um, we sort of nudged down into this valley and, yeah, got probably in probably one of the Oh, it was my first gunfight, but it was probably the biggest gunfight that our unit had, had for a long time. Yeah, right. Fuck. Was, um, Welcome yeah, to the jungle. Pretty, pretty decent. Like we had a, a whole platoon. We were all mounted back in the old SRVs back then. Yeah. No armor. Like you had a bit of armor stuck on here and there where you could. Um, doors if you were, you know, scared. Um, <laughs> but, but um, and j- just for the listeners, basically, when when he talks SRV, it's a uh, pretty much an open open vehicle. It's like a convertible. It is literally yeah, a convertible Land Rover. It's a four-door. We had the four-door Land Rovers, so yeah. it wasn't RPVs like Perth had. I think we might have had one or two of them for the mortar cars. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think the load rating on them was 500 kilos, and we had, like, tons of equipment on them. You know, you got a 50 cal with 1,000 rounds, 84s, Mag 58s, mortar bombs. You know, they were pretty loaded up, so they didn't move fast, and um, they had about as much armour as a can of Coke. So, um, yeah, so we'll... You know, we got a fairly decent. We had one platoon sort of not pinned down in a valley, but they couldn't move out of the valley um, because it was a massive ambush set. And so we sort of, our platoon sort of moved down to sort of set up a support by fire to sort of support their move out. And, you know, it was a classic, if you're writing a script for an MRE, and it was exactly like our MRE, it was yeah. like the icon chatter, get the watermelons, you know, get this, get that, and everyone talking it up and we're like, now, this is my first time outside the wire and again, so we're all just listening in the back of the um, platoon sergeant's car, just listening to the ICOM chatter and, oh, yeah, it's happening, it's going to happen. And, you know, so, well, some of the boys had been there before, so it was really good having them around. Yeah. Like, two really solid guys in my team that had done the previous Bravo Company trip and both had really good combat experience. So as a junior team commander, that was awesome to have them. But, you know, just hearing the chatter build up, you know, it was hot as, hot as hell. And, um hearing it all build up, you know, all the indicated warners that they're going to shoot, it was pretty much on cue. And, um, yeah, we just – the whole position just got lit up. And I think in the opening burst of fire, the OC got shot in the ass, platoon commander got shot in the leg, and, yeah, all the cars just got – there was only about five or six cars we had up there, and, yeah, we got absolutely pizzled. Um, then held our position, put in a support by fire um, to let the other platoon move through, and, I think the mortar line that was back behind us were getting the ass shot out of them, but those boys were sprinting from behind the car, dropping a bomb, running back, sprinting, and you know, so there wasn't a car that didn't probably come out touched up from that. Yeah, so, fuck. Yeah, one of my dudes because I was back at the Bravo car, and one of my guys had jumped on my Mag Fifty Eight on the front of the car, and it was shooting up a position, and a round hit the carry handle, like square in the Shit. end of the carry handle of the Fifty Eight, and so. <laughs> every dude on that trip would have a story like that. Like, yeah. Our car was just shot to pieces and most cars were. There was 
there was like smoke coming out of you know fizzing rounds and um i think a couple of javelin rockets got shot up and had to blow them in place it was dudes driving out on four flat tires there's one dude trying to change a tire in the middle of it you know, just getting <laughs> so it was pretty crazy for you know like a week before i was in new zealand you know drinking piss <laughs> you know and then yeah i think so in the, it was pretty good in your first gun fight Once and again, biggest like, gun fight you know that focus that i got at singer that focus i got when i got to the unit that gave us focus for the trip like it wasn't like the end of the trip that happened when you got complacent that just switched everyone on straight away it's like hey this is this is business this isn't timor um yeah they're real holes and that's a real Kazavak coming in so yeah it was yeah bought at home and it just set the standard for the rest of the trip that we're here for business so there was no complacency there was no sort of this is like an exercise sort of stuff so um we're fortunate that that happened as, yeah as a wake-up call in a way shot in the butt but <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so but, how long was that trip for um, about five months. Ended up, we ended up staying on for the winter, so that trip blew out to, you know, we were on the old SOCOM depot of five months and twenty eight days, so we didn't get Rockle. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think that trip I didn't get home until maybe late January, so that next year. So oh fuck, two thousand eight. Yeah, yeah. So that was um oh shit would have been close to six and a half seven months for us. So yeah, because we ended up getting extended and staying on for the winter. So. Yeah, so obviously during this time, the Australian Army uh, loses a couple of guys as well. Obviously, David Pierce, uh, Poppy Pierce, yep, uh, from uh, two fourteen, second uh, fourteenth Light Horse Regiment. Um, yep. Matt Locke, Special Air Service Regiment, yep. and uh, yeah. Luke Worsley. So this is all yeah. during your time while you're there. It was. Like, I remember every one of those days. Like, um, yeah, I remember Poppy because I think we were on base then, and news got around pretty quick. Um, but that had happened like, oh God, I think, yeah, that was what, October? The Yeah, Poppy was uh, 8th of October. 8th of October. I might be a bit out of sync. It was, it was a long time ago now. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, mate. Yeah, I'm just reading. Yeah, I remember it. that. And once again, that was like, shit, you know, that was especially, you know, he was an older guy, you know, mm. like a young dude, you know, and seeing that happen. And, you know, once again, I bought it home, everyone, and, you know, we weren't immune to to casualties, you know, I think. Like, we weren't taking casualties like the Dutch or anyone else, but we are doing things better, you know, and everyone was doing things better than other units or other countries, and we weren't immune from casualties. So, yeah, so, you know, obviously I didn't know Poppy or, you know, but as an Australian soldier, so your heart goes out to everyone involved. Exactly, yeah. Um, you know, and especially so late on in his trip as well. So, yeah, but then, um, yeah, once again, you know, I remember Matlock as well. Like we were, um, that was a huge, huge operation. That so, um, I think our part in that operation was to push up through Chora early and push up into Gizab to put in a block to support. I think it was a big British Gurkha clearance. Yeah, in Chora yep. Valley, and that's where um, I think uh, Perth were doing all the recons and all the pathfinding for that. And we heard about that they'd taken a casualty during that day, and we're like, fuck, you know. Um, we'd had a few little stashes as we got up into Gizab, but, um, yeah, later on we heard that. And there was quite a few guys in, in our company that knew Matt from back in the battalions and what have you. So that was pretty somber sort of feeling for everyone. And, uh, you know, we stayed out for another couple of weeks after that. So, you know, we missed all the, all the ramp ceremonies and what have you, but 
yeah, that once again, it was, you know, that was too in a short space of time then. Yeah. So bought it home and, you know, I said, I think we're fortunate having that big ass kicking on the first day out the wire because everyone knew we were there. It was serious. So. It's a real deal. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, Luke Worsley, yeah, uh, so, 23rd of November. Yep. That was that was pretty pivotal in cement the culture that you see in sort of Bravo Company, the company I was in now. Um, yeah, that was a really long, arduous foot infill to a target, which we had pretty good intelligence on. And then, um, yeah, I think Luke's platoon was moving to one building with our teams and our platoon were moving to another. And I just remember we all heard the gunfire as we're going in and we hit our target. We heard like, man down over the radio or casualty or whatever it was and everyone continued through and then it come across come across the radio while everyone's still on target clearing through that you know that platoon had taken a KIA and I think at the next hour and a half it was just trying to while well, we you know we're still on target trying to work out who it was and you know and become apparent it was Luke and he was a pretty well loved guy like mm, by everyone mm. so yeah so um I think from there, everyone just sort of cleared the target, done the job, and then I think I can't remember how long the exfil was, but no, they weren't they weren't bringing in an AME bird for a KIA. So um, the whole company pretty much carried Luke out over some of the worst terrain you'd ever imagine. Um, it was kilometres; it was a really long way, but it took all night. I don't think we got back to the cars until well into the next morning. But yeah, right. It was sort of like a sort of a company funeral. Yeah. Yeah. Far out. Yeah. Crazy. I think that eventually they called uh, one of those patrol bases Worsley. Yeah, they did. Yeah. 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 I can't remember what one it was. Like, it's one just actually, before, it was one just before the Baluchi Valley. Yeah. I spent yeah, a couple of nights there. They changed back to like Afghan names. When yeah, they, they did eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. Political correctness, mate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember. They just changed names. Like, you know, we'd always change the names of the villages depending on the comps you want to get up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mate, but, so um, you get back back to Sydney uh, t- 2008, January. So you yeah, spent a few yep. months in the GAN. And obviously at this stage, you know, Two Commando is pretty much starting to get established as Two Commando. Well, yeah, there was rumours of a name change coming, getting around and, you know, everyone was putting up their case for a name change. It wasn't, you know, not that there's much in a name, but it was more just a – not separate from the RAO, everyone was proud of, you know, being part of the Royal Australian Regiment, but we were part of SOCOM, so we didn't have to come under that command. Um, there were still people like, I think I did my subject for sergeant's course that year, and I, there was instructors this thing out that still didn't believe that we were part of SOCOM and we did stuff, you know. They just thought that they had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> um, I'm like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> you know, just dinosaurs. Yeah, uh, yeah, no idea. So it was important for unit identity. Like we were a different unit. We had different capabilities. You know, we, we were different people. Exactly. Uh, yeah, better. And it was important to be recognised as that. So, you know, a lot of people campaigned for it. Um, there was all sorts because we also we had the navy as well. Like we were, you know, we didn't have much of an air force presence back then. We had a little bit, but um, you know, we had a navy platoon attached to us as well. And like that was full time. They're still there. They're part of the unit. So. We're becoming sort of a bit of a joint, a joint sort of enabled force. So everyone had their own ideas for what the name should have been. But um, yeah, in the end, it was just thrown around and it would be two commandos. So um, yeah. I can't remember exactly when it was, when we were told it would be two commando, but I remember the day the name changed because I was back in the GAN again. So that's another story. <laughs> um, yeah, but 
Yeah, but 2008 was another flat-out year. I just got back from the GAN, fresh operational experience. Uh, We had a new OC, new command structure. We already knew we were going back to the GAN start of the following year, so it was like no rest straight into it. So we were straight into subject courses, um, supervisors' courses. The whole year, I think I spent just as much time away as I did the previous year. Um, And then... Quick bit of leave, and we'll back off to the GAN again the following year. So yeah, just, just to track back, Mac on uh, yeah. SOTG five. How kinetic was the rest of the tour? It was just you know, it was it was a bit sporadic. It was you know we were quite a presence on the ground. You know, like you'd roll it as a platoon or a company, in, and we're all vehicle mounted back then in cars. So you know you had three guys per car. So you roll a platoon out, you still got you know the grunt mass there. Like you got yeah. four teams. <laughs> You got ten to twelve cars for a platoon. Yeah, um, spread out, dust distance, tooled up to the max. People knew you were coming, yeah. and they knew that if they gave us a lick, and we just turn the guns right, yeah. unload because we're driving back to base. <laughs> you know, like so, we're pretty big presence to be picked with. You had to sort of dumb it down a bit and run a few tethered goat options to sort of tease them out. Um, the rest of the trip wasn't. You know, we, we took part in some big operations as sort of screening forces or. Um, proving force, like we pushed right up into the north of, um, oh, right up past Anaconda. What was that called? Like miles past, you know, like a week's drive, you know, up into these areas where, you know, we hadn't put people before just to prove the areas and screen. So you run into people that were pretty happy to see us up there. Um, I think we got, there was only one way up and one way back. So I think every time we come back from somewhere like that, we got ambushed just close to TK. Because they knew you had to come back, yeah. That trip we got, yeah, we got ambushed on the way back. This was the same. It was like an MRE. It was like, they're coming, the infidels, get the gun, get this, get that. <laughs> but, oh, here we go, and then boom. Yeah, we got you know pretty lit up. Um, I don't think anyone got clipped, but all the cars once again got an absolute shellacking. So, um, yeah, a lot of close calls. A lot yeah. Of close calls. Yeah, right. I was in water bottles and I think, you know, I hit my backpack, had a little jemmy bar in it that got a bullet (laughs) wedged in it, you know. So um, lots of close calls, but we're just, you know, inshallah, it was was good for us that day. God willing, um, mate, God willing. And then, yeah, not too many, not that kinetic. Like we did lots of ops, lots of night ops. But once again, like a lot of the boys have covered it. Like we worked at night, like, it probably would have been kinetic if we were going out in the day all the time. But yeah. You just you just walk in, stand on the dude's chest, put his shoes on and take him out. Like you didn't have to put up a fight. So, you know, it was safer for us. It was safer for the civ pop or the civil population. It was safer for oh, – it was obviously safer than insurgents because they were out of prison before we got back to base. So, um, you know, so that's probably why it wasn't as kinetic because we still owned the night back then, so – yeah, yeah, and obviously at that stage too, the, the Taliban in a way were still establishing who they were as well and obviously learning the tactics from the Dutch, the US, Aussies yep. and, you know, yep. fuck, it was a multinational base so there was fucking everyone there. Yeah, there, there was some big stuff. Like we stayed on for the winter, which traditionally everyone packed up and went home, but we had a lot of success working out. You know, it was a very cold winter, but we'd work every night um, that we had AME support and, we were, we were scooping up quite a lot of bad dudes, but non-kinetically. Like, we just go in there and grab them. Or, um, or they just get hell-fired from an OP, you know. Like, we had... <laughs> Fuck, yeah. We're starting to talk about this partner force stuff, you know. Like, 
we took a few Afghans out with us here and there. Um, you know, and I remember one of our guys took an Afghan patrol out and, you know, he was an old old mortarman from way back and, you know, he was, he was our opso or something, but he, he just took some guys out and got an absolute, he was with some US crew and he got absolutely lit up. And, um, you know, he hadn't called in mortars for years, but he called in a mortar mission with a broken compass, you know, nearly on himself. And, um, you know, really good story if you ever get a chance to speak to him. But, um, oh, fuck yeah. You know, but we all just sat and watched that from a compound we were living in up in Chora. So, you know, there's still a lot of stuff going on. But, yeah, of course, yeah. Um, not as kinetic as later trips, but, you know, obviously also we, Australia just rolled up 3KA within a couple of months. So yeah, yeah. appetite for risk from command was pretty low. Yeah, so, of course, of course. You know, like it was hitting the papers at home. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So yeah. 2000, 2009, SOTG9, so this is uh, back again. Yeah. So – we had an awesome build up for that. We had um we had a new OC come in who had a reputation for, you know, he's still a really good mate of mine. And um, you know, he, the best thing about him was his arrogance and confidence, but it was also the worst thing. So he, people either loved him or hated him. He didn't pull any punches. He had a really you know, shoot straight command. And um we worked really hard in the build up. Like we done a lot of hard build up. Um, long, we done a really long MRE down in Coltana, where we done a lot of lot of gunnery. We had an Armoured Corps XO, so he was massive on gunnery stuff. So we done a lot of a lot of gunnery out of the cars. Um, you know, lots of calling in like ECAS. I got to call in. You know, we all got to do live ECAS missions and call in mortars. Like as a team commander, the prep that I had was just awesome. Like rolling back overseas after you know calling in mortars live, adjusting mortars, calling in air live. You know, like. It was just a really good build-up. Um, and when we rolled in for the SATG9, it was we were rolling in hot. I think our first op was, oh, I'm going to say it was about four weeks um, down in Helmand province. So we drove to Helmand from TK. Um, yeah, right. We, how, how, how far is that drive? Oh, man, it took about a week. Fuck. I don't know how many Ks it was, but it took, it was a pretty hellish drive. But um, we were going in to provide a sort of a harassing force. To, they were installing a big generator down at the Kajaki Dam and um, the the Brits and the Yanks were getting really hardly hit down um, yep. down in North Helmand. So we went up there just to hit from the northern Kajaki fan, northern Helmand, just to provide a bit of a, a disruption and distraction for the insurgents. And so, but obviously as soon as we sort of, Turn from sort of Deraywood or whatever it was that they knew we were going to Helmand. They started setting up for us. So I think you know, it took us about a week to drive there because of the amount of IEDs that we had to clear, bypass, or hit. Um, and everywhere we parked was just, you know, we were in this valley that was about two Ks wide, which is, you know, a K sort of the max effective for an RPG and a machine gun. And we're parking like right in the middle of it. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I think every harbour that we slept in, we got shot at in. So um, all the way down this valley um, for about a week. So we we hit a few IEDs. Um, we unfortunately lost one of our EAD guys to an IED as well, who was uh, rendering safe. Um, that was uh, Brett Till. Um, yep, yep. Our platoon's EAD tech. And, um, yeah, unfortunately, Brett um, passed away rendering safe an IED for us. So, But then um, his team continue just to clear IEDs like oh, I couldn't even tell you how many there was but it was dozens and dozens of IEDs and they're the ones we cleared not 
drove around. So um, we drove around the ones we could. Um, there was just so many. So and then I think the first morning we got into this valley, we you know, we hadn't slept for days. And I remember um, I, I was just caught up with one of my teammates the other day. It was pretty funny. I remember I love to cook. I love cooking. Yeah. And, uh, I love cooking for my team. It's just something I've always done. And uh, I remember saying, we're going to cook pancakes when we get into this harbour. We're having pancakes for brekkie. So <laughs> we got in this harbour. We slept that night. I think we got a parachute uh, resub, so they just dropped all the stuff in. Um, that's just all smashed to bits down in the valley. And that's yeah. fine. But, um, <laughs> we're cooking pancakes the next morning and just, you know, it's like when you're, yeah. when you're out and you're just that meal can be just. Game changer. Step them out, yeah. We are. We're starting to rack these pancakes out and then just oh no, <laughs> getting mortared like pretty accurately. And it was like, that's not just one, that's a full, that's that's a fire for effect coming in. So we had to just diddy him out in the cars and we're just throwing shit in the cars and just driving off. Some guys were dressed, some weren't, um, just driving to get out of there, out of the mortar range. And um, we were still cooking the pancakes. So, because, you know, you can't shoot back at a mortar line. We don't know where they are. So, we're just driving. We've got the jet ball in between the legs, flipping the pancakes, feeding <laughs> the gunner, feeding the driver, pulling to the Reese up and the CSM, who's a good mate of mine still. He's he's like, what the fuck's going on in here? You guys are fucking cooking pancakes and there's water's coming in. So, but, you know, that was quite memorable, not just for me, but um, my gunner from that team just lives around the corner. So, um, yeah, we catch up a bit, and he he reckoned that's still one of his most memorable meals he's ever had. It was just you know, pancakes with a side of mortars. So, but um, <laughs> that whole trip was that whole trip down to Helm and like Alpha Company had gone in there the trip before us a little bit and gotten some decent stouches and proved the ground for us. Um, there wasn't much in that valley at all. Like no one really went through there. I think later trips there was a seal base there, but um, yeah, the whole trip down every night we just got we get shot at most days. Um, we had to go into harbours at night. So, yeah, right. And I'm just looking at the internet. Uh, these days, Tarrant to Helmand is seven hours and 24 minutes, 340 kilometers. Oh, is it? Yeah, these yeah. days, these days. These yeah. days. Yeah. Is that Look, on Google? I give you directions. That's on Google. <laughs> no shit. Yeah. There is Google directions uh, these days. Oh, mate. Yeah. I reckon <laughs> we had guys under tow. We had cars. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, mate. It was been... hard on the cars. So yeah. I remember. We pulled into one harbour and um, we had a couple, we were fortunate, we had a couple of mechanics, just sort of dudes in the teams. And um, we were digging pits with e-tools to put the cars over the pits to change gearboxes and, um, you know, like full bush mechanic stuff it was. like I remember Fuck. one dude made a throttle cable out of a heater cable sort of thing and, you know, so it was full bush mechanics to keep those cars going. But yeah. It was star pickets getting jammed under suspension and <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, Keeping those, they were your lifeline. So keeping them going was exactly, so, yeah, absolute hunks of shit. Like people are paying one hundred and fifty grand for them. Oh, no, they are, yeah, they are now. Yeah, <laughs> mate. So that that trip, five month trip, this one. Um, I think that one. Yeah, we didn't. That one didn't blow out at all. I think it was five, five and a bit. Yeah, five and a bit. Yeah, I think February till. Yeah, we were home by August. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we saw you know the good part of the fighting season for that. So it was nice and hot. Um, oh, except it rained in Helmand for the whole time we were there, so oh. just mud. <laughs> but um, but that was a good trip. Like we nudged right down into the, you know, we hadn't been down in there before like, as a as a regiment. So um, I was still four hour at this point on the trip. So we'd um we'd nudge right down into the Kajaki fan doing you know full on 
you know, driving up, dismounting from the car, like, you know, old school five, seven drills, dismounting from the cars and then just fighting through. So uh, lots of cars, lots of A10s. Um, you know, I think we had Spectres. We had B1Bs coming down in below the cloud cover. Like, it was the first time I actually just saw the might of CAS, like close air support. Yeah. Uh, and just seeing, you know, A10s that you could, you know, you could see the guy in the cockpit just strafing rockets in front of you and the gun, like that sound. Is, oh, fuck yeah. Oh, it's just, <laughs> sound of destruction. I've still, still got some grainy old camera footage of, you know, like we were going toe for toe with a guy with an 84. He had a 107. It was just boom, boom, boom. And, you know, the JTAC comes down to start talking on his A-10 and just as they fire a rocket at us and we'd mark it up with smoke. And I think he's like, yeah, I saw it. You know that noise that they yeah, make? Yeah, yeah. Boys are just down tools and just, just – <laughs> it's just – I know it's, I can't get excited at the Avalon Air Show anymore. <laughs> <laughs> just seeing that is just something I'll never see again. You know, it's just yeah, um, seeing that sort of close air support come in. Um, yeah, it's just awesome. So, but that was a really good trip. That was a good mix of you know dismounted ops, full on sort of vehicles, sort of jockeying around, shooting, covering each other up into the positions, like full, you know, like. The manoeuvre that we had to do was amazing. So, But we only did that because we had that really good training leading up to it where we did like 16, 20K gun runs up and down Coltana Range where we got to do that. So, you know, just training is just what it's all about. You know, yeah. You know, I always say you don't, you know, just find yourself on the ground. You just fall back to what your training was. So. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Really off, so. so you're back to, uh, back to Holsworthy again. Um, at this stage, mate, Two Commander is highly established, highly capable, and fucking gunfighters. Pretty much everyone. Yeah, probably. This was a. We got renamed Two Commando while we're on ops. We we're back inside the wire, and that was our our unit birthday, basically. And it was birthday, you know, zero. And um, so we were really lucky to be deployed, and we hadn't even seen the new hat badge. We hadn't even seen anything. They sent over 10 hat badges for us to whack on a beret to get a photo for prosperity reasons and and probably the the whole northern Afghan supply of coronas. <laughs> so <laughs> it's probably one of the best, you know, like everyone talks about like the fat lady's arms and all that. And we we had a back deck um, just in the back corner of the buildings like in TK. And um, you know, one of the boys had built it all. You know, I think Alpha Company might have built it, but they'd, you know, burnt in the big double diamonds in there and it was nestled in the Hesco bus. It was a bit of an outdoor sort of recreational area. And I remember me and my other mate who was one of the, well, the one, one sort of the senior team commanders and we got given the responsibility to look after the two big ice chipper bins full of piss until the CSM had got back with the, um, all the hat badges he needed to send back to the RSM. <laughs> Like by the time we got back there, I think we'd emptied one of them. And <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> probably the best, you know, it was sort of like the big birthday party and it was a reward for all the work that people had done leading up to that of establishing ourselves from just the running joke in Holesworthy and Singo to becoming like two commando. So yeah. it, was, it was a really proud moment for a lot of guys. So. What was your rank at that stage? I got promoted to sergeant, I think, maybe just before that. Yeah. Uh, so while I was on that trip. So and I think just- I got promoted. Just yeah. for the listeners, where does the sergeant fit into a two-commando team? As a team commander. Yep. Yeah. But, you know, back in the early days, I was a team commander from being a corporal, you know, and 
was sort of a bit arse about in a unit because I'd been on tag young later, earlier in my career. I had all the skill sets and all the supervisor skills to be a team commander, whereas guys that hadn't been on team didn't. So you just had to be the team commander because you ran all the training. You know, as a, I think me and another mate, as corporals, we were running all the trainings for the company because we were the only guys that had the qualifications to do it. So, yeah. But, um, yeah, so I was, I was a team commander. I was, well, you know, I was a lead lead planner, like the one one for that trip. So um, we like, planned all the on-target stuff for the, uh, the infill sort of part of the target. Yeah, it was good times, really good times. Yeah, nice, nice, mate. So back to Holsworthy, 2010, back on tag. Yeah, 2010, we are back on team. So we got back, I think, late 09, straight into build-up training for going on team. Like, it was quite a significant handover. Mm. Fortunate that, you know, we'd spent a lot of time on tag before, so we knew what it was. And all the team commanders that we had were pretty much my peer group from when we were on, on team years before. So it was a pretty smooth transition for us, and we are just able to, once again, you just grab that capability and just run and run and run. Like you get lots of lots of rope to hang yourself with, and um, and when you use that, you get more rope. So you're just you're just pushing. It's a great time to sort of push yourself as a commander and to push all your guys training to the limit um, while you're in a reasonably benign environment. So which is that training slash operational sort of mode. So it was a really really good time. But by then I'd. You know, I'd only been in the army ten years, but you know, I've been working since I was about fifteen. So yeah, I was getting pretty cool. Like I've been working. I had a weekend off from my apprentice, you know, from school to apprenticeship. Weekend off to the army. You know, I never had a real break. Never done the gap year thing. So um, yeah, so I took some long service during that and just got out there for a few months and just went out to South America and just <laughs> traveled around and. <laughs> Saw the sights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, did that for a few months, so yeah, which was awesome. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mate, I can only imagine South America. Bloody hell. Yeah. Yeah. Just, <laughs> I just yeah, saw you have a look over your missus for a second then. Yeah. No, um, I was actually with my wife at the time. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah we both sort of used it as a bit of a delayed sort of honeymoon. Yeah. Um so yes, yeah, so obviously you spend that two thousand uh, what's that 2010 period of just recuperating really just catching yeah, just your, catching your breath refreshing i think you know i did a couple of little psds in the kabul and stuff like that um long service tag you know that year went pretty quick before you know it, you're handing back the tag to the next company and we're back in again <laughs> you know not long after that so. yeah so 2011 obviously sotg 16 yeah we're back there i can't remember what happened leading up to that but i think yeah, probably the normal ring around of MREs and what have you. Things had changed for me a little bit. I'd um, I had to get a shoulder reco from an older injury. Um, so you know, my CSM at the time is like, mate, you just need, you can't be the one one if you're going to get a shoulder reco because I might miss out in a lot of the training. And I was like, I put it off for three trips. Um, so I got the shoulder reco done on BRL, just to, you know, chew down the recovery time and um. I got put into the op sergeant position, which I originally thought was a bit of a stabbing because all the op sergeant normally did was made sure there was source with the pies. And, you know, you, you could write your own book if you're the op sergeant yeah. um, unit and you could take that job and run with it or you could do fuck all, you know. And I was made op sergeant, so I chose the latter and just, just ran with it and just, 
just pumped a lot of effort into helping run all the company level training, like um, setting up the targets, setting up realistic targets for all the MREs, briefing up good op force, and pretty much help run the MRE with. You know, we had SOCOM running the MREs then, so we had an element from uh, headquarters. So we ran that. We had like real live Afghans as you know enemy, like blank fire. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we had um, you know really good enablers. The MREs were quite good back then. We had actors, we had pyrotechnics, we had the lot. So I sort of ran that half of it with my arm in a sling, half not, and I think I got the tick to deploy. You know, just in the nick of time and rolled over on SOTG. 16 as the ops sergeant and leading up to that though like the charlie company boys who were there just had an absolute you know they'd had a full-on trip like really kinetic um had a lot of blokes sort of a lot of blokes got clipped um i think they took three ka so it was a really hard trip for them and we knew what we were getting into it was we're landing in like june or I think it was, and it was going to be it was going to be full on. Or July it was. We landed, so yeah. So going into a pretty hot trip we were. So um, once again, the focus for the guys back then, like you know, there's only ones and two new guys coming into the company and the teams then. So we we're very mature as a as a company um, and as a regiment. So you know, we knew what was happening. So it was yeah, yeah. Once again, that focus in training just you know. You can't wait till you're on ops to get good at what you do. So. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that, you know, you're just talking about you know the, the losses of the Australian Army. Fuck, it was extensive at this stage. You know, oh, every every couple yeah. of months we we're losing. You know, one guy. You know, obviously lost a couple on the Hilo crashes as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a continuing theme for the Australian Army. It, you know, it was it was at that stage where you just like you're back home in Australia, like uh, basically you're just waiting. Like, yeah. when's, when's the yeah. next one? Yeah, yeah. It was. It was always. You know. You know, unfortunately, we, we took a lot of those guys, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And SOCOM, so, you know, but even, you know, we were so entwined with the rest of the army that everyone knew someone that was, every time someone. Exactly. Someone knew them. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like everyone shares that, so, yeah. And I think it's not so much, it's not as though it was like reported on the scrolling on the bottom of the news. It was it was always big news. It was front page. Yeah, it was, yeah. Reported on, double page spread, so it was. I don't know why, but they just made it such big news back then and, you know, but how quick they shifted their focus on the army. So. Yeah, mate. Yep. Yep. We're, but, you know, yeah. they parade Never. around like it was a – politicians were there and, you know, it's got to the point where people are writing in their things. I don't want any politicians at my funeral, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah, because it was like everyone got sick of seeing them there. It was, you know, everyone got good at funerals. But pretty tired of them pretty quickly. Yeah, it? yeah. Fuck. I think the prime. I, I went to Merv McDonald's funeral, and I think uh, the prime minister was there. I can't remember who the prime minister was, but Gillard. Gillard was. I'm pretty sure. Gillard. Yeah. Fucking yeah. rat. Yeah, they all show up eventually. So. <laughs> That's it. And they got their place. You know, they're, they're the ones signing off the, you know, signing their ass off to send us there. So yeah. You know, at least they front up to either take it on the chin or pay their respects. So yeah. No. It's a political move yeah. then. Um, so, so obviously that trip, uh, SOTG 16, this is where it turns into working with the DEA. Yeah. So that was, it had sort of happened a bit with Charlie company had sort of set that up. Like it was a few key guys that sort of really, there's a couple of key people involved in just rubbing shoulders with the guys looking for jobs and then hearing that they were looking for a partner force that sort of got them working with, um, two commando because, they just needed someone to go out there. They provided the investigative 
um, the intelligence and sort of the, the legal reason to go and hit a place because I think Joe was telling me, like, you could have an arsenal of 107 rockets and just get a slap on the wrist, but you've got heroin. It's a it's a felony over there. So, now you can go to jail for manufacturing heroin in Afghan. Like, <laughs> everything else is cool. But, um, everything, yeah. So it's a really good way to take people off the battlefield. And obviously, you know, since the dawn of time where there's guns and guns and drugs and money mm. just hang out with each other. So yeah, and women. a good way for us to get outside the wire. Uh, it was a good way... No, and some people don't agree with this. They say, oh, no, we shouldn't have done it. So, fuck that, mate. It was, as someone going back on their third trip, it was the only time I could put my hand on my heart and say, fuck, that trip was worth it. Like, to see a tangible effect on the battlefield that you could sort of tell yourself, like, you know what, like, if we just got, you know, I think that trip was a billion dollars, billion US dollars worth of heroin off the streets that in our trip alone. So, if we've taken that heroin off, everyone that profiteers along the way and back off the streets, we've done something good. So you could feel good about the work you were doing. So, but, um, yeah, we sort of, as I said, I was the op sergeant, so I was sort of, I could sit in base and just count power raids out for dudes or I could just <laughs> work hard. And I was fortunate that one of the, uh, I think it was our, co- our company XO was a, you know, we got along really well and we just formed our own rogue PHQ element and just sort of, said, we will be the liaison for the DEA. We'll, we'll provide the ground force command. So I was sort of like a platoon sergeant, team commander, demolitions guy, just a one-man band of all of my accumulative experience, and I just was the liaison to them. Um, and it just, I don't know, it just worked. It just, they liked it because they always had like one of us, like I spoke their language, like you had to interpret with these guys because... <laughs> You know, learning the Aussie lingo is pretty hard yeah. in the US. So um, I was like their interpreter, their sort of ground force commander for that element. Um, and, yeah, it was it was great. We were able to um, – what's going on out there? Oh, sorry, there's people tooting. Um, yeah, I was able to just provide them a, a constant uh, link back into the ground force that was on the – you know, supporting their operation, whether it was one of the platoons, two of the platoons, you know, like – depend on the target is how many people we sent out, but just being that constant forum, doing all the planning, doing all their, you know, running all the demolition side of the house was, you know, I believe it provided those guys a really good package and all they wanted to do is work for, with us. Like they just said, no, nah, we're not working with, they'd worked with other soft elements and they just said, no, nah, just, just to commando. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly what Joe said as well. Now, obviously Joe gave us his rundown on what, you know, the DEA were doing in Afghanistan and you guys were basically like the, the hired muscle to assist them and blow shit up. And yeah, obviously they bought, they bought really good in like fused intelligence to the party. Um, the DEA, they got their fingers in every single pie in every country. And yeah. Really good <laughs> intelligence and, and uh, so they brought that to the party. They bought a lot of assets that meant that we could. Now, obviously, narcotics was always sensitive. You know, we weren't meant to target it because it hurts the farmers. But where we hit it was at that really fine point where you could get the most amount of product with the least amount of risk to the farmers um, and also before it went away. So we tried to hit the drug labs when it was when they were cooking, like when they had, now when, when they've got everything set up and you can't just hide it. Um, or we tried to hit the the raw poppy at the marketplace. And so, you know, like four tonne of poppy seed is a lot of poppy seed. So, or, you know, so we tried to hit it at those key points. 
Um, and you'll also most likely get the most amount of shit kickers around. Yeah. Process. So hitting at that perfect time was a really, you know, we provided just a good force to do that because we had a lot of flexibility. We could roll out, I think the smallest packet I rolled out was just me, one of my mates brought his team along. Um, we took a JTAC, like it was about maybe oh, eight or ten Aussies, the rest of DA and a few Afghans. Um, or we could roll out a full commando company. And if you've seen that roll out, like a full commando company on the ground just is is pretty impressive when you're in an area like, you know, you can contr- dominate a whole valley, you know, bring a lot of firepower and a lot of projection. So we could you know, push out further and farther than any other sort of force could because we could take our own doctors and what have you. So um, it was a pretty good package and we're able to have some really good effects on the battlefield. So. Yeah. yeah, mate. Just quickly for the listeners, just explain to us. Obviously, the the poppy itself now, or the opium. You've seen it. Obviously, they have that little scraper and they scrape the and they do it individually. Every single one they scrape and obviously they yeah, extract that. One, uh, they gather the sort of the resin. You know, yep. I'm not a chemist, but they gather all the resin from all the poppies and they sort of form it into a bag about the size of sort of a soccer ball of just mushy, looks like molassesy sort of resin, and then they sort of take that back and. They boil it in water with a lot of precursor chemicals and they sort of liquefy it and um, liquefy it and evaporate it a few times as they add uh, chemicals to it and sort of forms like a morphine, they call it, like a morphine base. And then uh, once they form that base, they sort of reduce it down and refine it further into what we know as heroin. So um, heroin was rare because that was the hardest thing. Like you can hide 100 kilos of heroin Mm. in a motorbike, but... We'd try and hit it when it was at that morphine base when you got – I think my first hit out with the DEA, I think Joe mentioned it was we hit the largest drug lab ever known in Afghan. That had like 244-gallon drums full of liquid Fuck. morphine boiling. Like you could see this thing from space and they tried to cover it up with trees. And uh, we hit that thing. Like we we half straight onto it like um, with the US Marine air wing. And we cleared the target in about five minutes, and it took all day to blow that up and destroy it. Yeah, right. So we threw everything we had at it. So yeah, right. Just fucking. That's just the sort of scale. This thing was a factory, like just the ground space that it took up. Um, the amount of product we took off it was probably the largest haul that they had had, and probably have had since. So. And how was the gunfight to take it? Was there much of a resistance? Not much. It was a nighttime operation. Yeah. Um, we got inserted by the Marine Air Wing, so it was the first time I'd use those guys, the big MH53s. Like, these things were just, like, I think, was it that or one of the helicopters had the nickname the Rattling Shit Can of Death? Yeah. So, it's like any helicopter that's got that nickname isn't good. And you know, these <laughs> things were old, and these guys just flew cargo routes. So sometimes they pick you up and they've got rollers all over the back ramp, and you're trying to run on, and there's, you know, hydraulic fluid and rollers all over the floor. So it's not the sexy infill you'd expect from an SF platoon and guys <laughs> yeah. rolling out the back like Skittles. So <laughs> but they were big and um, they're a big helicopter. They're loud, they're, they're fast, they come with a good package. And um, I think the first time we landed, like they had to land on green because they brown out so much. And I think that job there, we come in and landed right on the X with the ramp towards the target and, as he sort of landed, he smashed the ramp off and sort of the helicopter sort of taken off, spun another bit and then just landed again. So it was a, it was a pretty hard landing and guys were thrown everywhere. And I think we ended up blowing the door breach while the helicopter was still on the ground. We thought it was crash landed because it was 
on its side. Yeah, right. Oh, like, but it ended up taken back and, you know, it was XX after that. But we cleared the target really quick. But as the sun come up in this valley, like this was, I think it was back in Valley, it was, it was far, far away from TK. Like you could only get there by pre-positioning um, down at uh, Camp Bastion. So, um, you know, there was a few stouches out and around the cord and what have you. Um, as we sort of everyone got into position, we took the full commando company down. So we dominated a lot of ground for that one, which we had to because it was such a big lab and a really, you know, you could almost touch each side of the valley. It was so steep. Um, and then throughout the day, it was just heaps of dudes just up in the hills with bolt-action bolt rifles, you know, really dialed in. They'd probably been pegging at Russians for 50 years. You know? Yeah, like, with the Leanfields. Really dialed in with their bolt action and yeah. sort of, now, there's a lot of footage getting around. Like, I never ran helmet cams and shit, but there's a lot of footage getting around of dudes just standing around, rounds landing in between their legs. And I remember we were just sitting around, and as the sun came up, the Afghan partner force we had were all cold and wet. So they're, you know, trying to get into the sun and sunbake. And one of them, like, rolls out into the sun, got shot in the ass. And <laughs> just like one dude with a bolt gun, and, you know, no, none of his mates would go and get him because every time anyone went out there, he'd shoot again. So. <laughs> They just left him there and, you know, I think it was, it was probably even Joe or someone that just dragged him back in, like, you know, berating these guys for not getting their mate. And, <laughs> you know, so we had our Afghan was shot. Um, yeah, a couple of our other PHQ guys, like really accurate single-shot small arms fire. Like, I wouldn't say they were like Chechen snipers, like, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These were just guys with landfields. Yeah. Um, but just, you know. Been doing it for 50 years. Kind of rolled onto our shores. I'd be sitting up on the hill with like a coffee pot in the landfill doing the same thing. So these guys were having a good old time. So. Yeah. But, um, yeah, until we hell fired them. But, um, <laughs> yeah. okay, I'll, okay. I'll raise you one. But, you know, the JTACs had a lot of fun that day. But, yeah, all day just destroying this drug lab with really accurate small arms fire. Like, literally, you, you went out in the sun, like, it was like zombies. You went out in the sun, you just got. <laughs> but um, that made it quite difficult because it was accurate. Um, it wasn't like the sustained gunfire and they piss off. It was just all day. So, um, and you couldn't shoot back because you didn't know where they were. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah right. But, so, obviously, a couple of episodes ago, we spoke with uh, Joe Pisanti. You guys were on a mission with, with the DEA. And, uh, mate, run us through this day. Yeah. Can I, can I wind it back? Cause a lot yeah, of, of course, mate. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. All, the success of an oppers by the level of gunfighting and the level yep. of, you know, everything we've done. But um, that was our first hit out with the DA, that guy, that time. And we'd sort of underestimated the level of destruction that we'd have to do for demolitions and to take down these labs. So me and another mate, uh, you know, we had a lot of fun doing it. Like, demolitions is fun. Like, there is no part of any person that would not love blowing yeah, stuff fuck up. Yeah, fuck like, yeah. Especially houses and Hiluxes and, you know, <laughs> it's good fun. But it's also risky. You know, we were there all day getting shot at doing it, and it could have been any of us just shot, you know, just having to be some poor sunbake in Afghan. But um, <laughs> as a result of that, you know, like, I'm pretty sure the DA headquarters are like, whoa, 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 our guys are getting in a lot of gunfights. We don't like that. So the next stop we had was just down the valley from this. And, um, you know, we always got given whatever air package you had to work with, and the instinctive way that a lot of guys like to do an air package was – add up how many seats there are, put as many blokes on the seats and just go. But um, I was lucky the the tune client I was working with or the XO, he gave us a fair bit of liberty in the planning. So instead of taking like 
I think our air package was four MI16s and six Hueys or whatever it was, like Huey gunships and slicks. So instead of just taking four MI17s worth of guys down, because it was so far away, we ended up taking uh, half the force and we just did – this for me was – defining because it was when i got sold the commando dream back in 2000 it was like oh no we just get a target we were we build the target we rehearse it we go in and hit it and we're home for breakfast i'm like sweet that sounds good we're not going out bush you know that's how it was sold but this was the first time i actually sort of put that into practice so i got to plan it with one of my good mates and we we took half the force that we needed and just infilled on one lot of helicopters as we were infilled the extract birds started taking off to get to us so we had the old stopwatch on we've got 45 minutes from going wheels down to clear and destroy a drug lab and get out and it was like that was not many shots were fired i think there was a few shots fired in the cordon but we were like right in the thick of area we got in a gunfight but this time we were able to get in there get in we destroyed a huge drug lab we'd rehearsed all the demolitions we had it all packed we'd rehearse the hell out of the target got in there and we were out and we we're back home in tk by like 7 8 o'clock in the morning yeah right destroyed you know probably one of the most sizable drug labs that we saw on that trip um but without a shot fired so for me for our for me for the unit and for the da that was one of the most successful missions because no one got hurt um you know they were happy that none of their agents got shot they were happy that none of us got shot so it sort of it put a lot of trust in our regiment to keep get doing these operations so um yeah we're able to just keep working with the guys and they're like yeah we love this this is good so and it was good fun like you know, i remember you know as a kid that's what you dream of doing like pulling a 30 second fuse on a whole house that's ready to blow with your <laughs> back and they say cool guys don't look back at explosions. It's like, yeah, you do. Cause look, that's yeah. That. So, and, you know, we're blowing up like, we blew up like a whole compound. Um, one of the boys laced up and blew up a whole tractor that just pulled up. It had like 10 drums of liquid morphine on it. You know, so it was a lot of damage done really quickly and we are home for breakfast, you know, eating breakfast with canned cream on. Mm. So for me, it was one of those, probably the best job I've ever done. Yeah. And, you know, no shots fired, but it was mission success, which was what we're about. And, we just kept working with the boys and every hit after that was the same. It was just in, you know, Tropic Thunder was a big movie of the trip. <laughs> you know, the boys were sort of like me to Danny McKnight, you know. Yeah. Big ass titties. And, you know, for me it was just, well, I was a sergeant, I'd done my team commander time. Yeah. It was, just, it was the point where guys in the company were starting to get shitty that I was going out on all these jobs. You shouldn't be doing this. I'm like, well, fuck I am, man. I'm not going to give it up. It was awesome. So, yeah. you know. Um, so for me, it was just awesome. Those operations, it was just pure intelligence driven destruction. <laughs> so yeah, it was good. And obviously we just kept rolling them out for all the whole time and yeah. And yeah, I wouldn't swap it for the world. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Yeah. So as I said before, you know, we, uh, we, we had Joe on and we spoke yeah. about, uh, you know, he's, or he spoke about what he remembers of that day and obviously a lot of it is obviously recollection recollections of everyone else's stories and probably your part of your story as well so mate, yeah. let's run through that uh tr- through that op and the incident yeah, with joe this op, i think you know joe touched on it because he was a big guy he always carried the gun but he'd be at the range just zeroing that gun like it was a you know like it was a Fucking hell, everyone was always getting annoyed because he just wanted the zero perfect on that gun. He took it pretty serious. So, you know, 
he whinges about carrying it, but he was bloody good with it. And, you know, he could hold that thing like a tripod he could. So, but, um, but this particular op was, so the trip prior to that is where I think it was the same bazaar. We kept renaming this bazaar so we could roll it again. So, um, so no one just cottoned on that we're hitting the same place. But I think that's where Brett, one of their other DA guys, got shot in the butt um, yep. on the trip prior. And we were talking about that on the map when we were looking at it. And um, That's on video. Like, oh. That's on video, that one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. on video. Yeah. Think, you know, the boys dragged him on. You know, it's like rewriting history, but um, going back in the same place, the same sort of thing. But I think that day we'd planned to hit. We are doing a lot of double hits. So we'd go in, clear a bazaar, get on the birds, get dropped off somewhere else and just doing two hits down in Helmand every sort of day. Um, they were long days, but really high payoff. Um, but that day we'd sort of plan paint bizarre. We knew it was going to be hot because it's just, it's literally a bowl just full of bad dudes. Um, and you know, like open carry sort of bizarre, it's huge heroin and arms market. So, um, we knew there was poppy seed there. We had really good intelligence on that. So that's what we were going after. So, um, I think we took a whole platoon and like 60 more mortars down on that one, just all dismounted. And um, I think as we were flying in, there were, dudes were shooting out of the choppers. Like there was dudes just open carrying, running around. So it was shooting down onto target, get off. And we just went straight into clearing the bazaar while the platoon just went out and just pretty sure, yeah, there was two MGs awarded that day. Yeah, so, shit. Yeah, I think it was that day or one of the dudes on the ground, two of them picked up MGs, but one of them was for that day. One might have been for another. But it yep. was it was epic. Like, so we were in the bazaar doing all the clearance while the teams were just out just getting amongst it, providing that security screen for us. But obviously we were in the bazaar and they wanted to protect the poppy. So, you know, it said the, the fire was sporadic for a little bit and then it started to get really accurate. Like, And Joe touches on that. Like everyone laughing at him you know, diving down on the ground, <laughs> you know, when he thought he'd been shot. But, um, yeah, but a lot of us had close calls that day. Like, I think I dropped a Powerade bottle running across buildings, went back for it and nearly got shot. You know, like it was every, every movement you had to do quite deliberate. It was. It reminded me of my urban warfare course where you're just in a doorway, hugging around a position, sprint to the next bit of shade, you know. So, you know, all that training sort of comes back and probably um, a lot of accurate fire, a lot of gunfight, like there was just gunfights all around us. Like, um, I think even the sniper teams were in like decent close quarter fights, not up in their Overwatch positions. So, um, everyone was amongst it that day, and we just cleared this whole bazaar. We had Afghan partner force who were sort of, you know, they were hit and miss. It, these Afghans were pretty good, the NIU, so they weren't the normal Afghan police, or they were pretty good. And the DA trained them for a long time, but. Um, we cleared this bazaar. We got tons and tons of poppy seed, which doesn't burn well. Um, so I think we cleared another few things. So I think we topped this fire up with, um, I think you can't really blow it up. So we just like, mixed in like heaps of rubber thongs and there was heaps of motor oil from another shop. So we just pulled motor oil over it, um, siphoned a car onto it, poured fuel, like, anything we could do to light the fire. And when we lit this, like, it was like the Springfield tire fire. It just went up. And um, then they just started just really hosing down on us in the bazaar from then. And I just remember um, me and the uh, dog handler, the EDD, sort of the solo guy, just, we just both just, he was inside a shop and I was crouched down behind a tractor, just absolutely pinned down. And like Bart's trying to move every time he went into the daylight, he'd got, you know, we ended up having a 
he had to break through into the next shop and you know yeah right it. so it was probably it was really accurate fire like really accurate um you know guys got there i remember one of my mates he got his antenna shot off there was guys with holes in water bottles on their kit and you know i don't know how no more no one else got shot that day it was full-on smoke grenades pepper pot and in between alleys and not having to get out of there as we started to sort of exit and because we were doing two jobs that day it was like i think joe said it was like we hang around all day yeah we hang around all day we're either going to get shot or we're going to run out of ammo so um you know so we made the decision that we push on to the next target and get the exfil so the exfil comes in which was um another pack of four mi-17s plus gunship support and I, I don't know if it was the hueys or apaches then but we had a f- there was heaps of air that day mm. um, i can't remember who the controller was i was talking to troy about it we're trying to work out who it was but yeah but yeah they just had air stacked up all around us that day so um yeah but we started moving towards the choppers and we just couldn't get there we were so bogged down like the whole platoon at this state was trying to fight across the sort of area to where the extraction birds were so um yeah it was getting pretty heavy everyone was shooting like there was so much stuff to shoot at um you know you're shooting to cover each other it was proper proper urban warfare you know yeah 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 and the lanes across to get across if you didn't you got shot at you know um yeah so we ended up getting missed the first extraction so it's just like one of those scenarios you miss the first birds you got to go to the next lot so um Ended up sort of holding firm a bit, coming up with a new plan and trying to get to a new spot. And yeah, I think Joe tells it well. Like this whole thing about the Afghan flown bird, like we weren't allowed to on it. And you know, everyone thinks it's not the dude stacking water bottles in the fridge at the mess. Afghans flying it. These guys have been to Sandhurst in the UK. Like they were good mm. pilots. They weren't. They didn't roll out of a Ford Ranger and on MI seventeen. So um, they were really good pilots and uh. Sitting in between those was a British guy from the Air and Addiction Unit who was training the pilots, and uh, he was just sitting on an esky full of Powerade in between them, and he was the liaison between the Afghans and us. And, um, yeah, so we get to the, you know, the Afghans didn't land. All of the Afghans jumped on our bird. <laughs> and, um, we ended up like, there was only, I think there was me and the, the platoon sergeant from the other platoon because we, we were like counting all of our dudes on, we'll last always last to get on the bird. Yep, yep. We're like, these Afghans weren't getting off, and we're like, we've got to stay. Who's we just need some gringos here with us? So, um, the DA team jumped off, and then there was just me, I think there was two or three Aussies, um, with us, and um, and these DA blokes, and it was just we just ran back to the side of the HLS and just jumped in a like a ditch and just sat there and just silence as the choppers just took off and you're still getting thumped as well oh yeah it sounded like someone had like cellophane just crystalline above your head like that crackle and you know then like lf4 or something you're down the yeah yeah it's just rounds everywhere we're just lying in this ditch and i remember looking at well i hate to i'm like are you listening to any brief lately because i think that's (laughs) what we're doing mate like they're gone like the birds were gone um i think we managed to raise comms and it wasn't when they fly off, they all send their counts up the front. Mm. You know? And it was the British LO that picked up, hang on, no, we should be picking up X amount of guys, but we've only got Y. Um, we're missing. And it, I think one of the birds, one of the MIs, I meant to take like 16, 17 dudes. We had like 24 dudes on it because they had the, all the Fuck. athletes just jammed into this thing. So um, credit to the pilots and the 
and the, the machines, like they're good machines. But um, yeah, so he flew back knowing that we were there, and we sort of saw it coming in, and um, yeah, we're getting pizzled. It was a it was a PKM sort of, you know, I can't remember the cardinal direction, but it was giving us a really good rinse out. It was, and um, this bird just started coming in anyway, and it was a, the one flown by the Afghans, and like. They parked the ass of that bird just square facing at this PKM. Um, the door gunners are just sort of looking at the stars. They didn't know what was going on on the ground. But, um, you know, you could just see the bird was getting the, the hell shot out, out of it um, as it was coming in. Um, you know, we used to wave the birds in because they used to fly so low and fast. They needed, like, you couldn't hold up a little bush hat marker panel. Mm. So we used to use full length Australian flags as a marker panel or just a day glow vest from a road worker, you know? Yeah. I remember Joe, you got a marker panel? I'm like, yeah. And he sort of started pulling out his. I'm like, it sounds like your job, mate. And he's run out and <laughs> waving up, you know, in the middle of a just, I don't know, idiot. But he ran out and he's waving this day glow vest just at this chopper that's just coasting on in like it's a, a, a bus. And, um, and it lands and he just parks at the back of it and we know it's good to go and, Everyone just starts, you know, running to get on. And I think um, I sort of went last just to make sure because, you know, Bravos are always sort of last man to get on so we can count the dudes on. And um, Chook was counting them on and I was last man. That's what we're doing. But um, everyone just starts running towards this bird. Um, the bird's getting the hell shot out of it. The door gunners aren't doing anything. Actually, I'm pretty sure one of our dudes might have even jumped on the door gun when he got on. Uh, I can't quite remember, but um, we don't have we done a few exfils sort of like that. But, um, yeah, as we're running, like, we're just sprinting, a couple of dudes perched at the back of the helicopter putting in cover and fire. And I think Joe had just sort of perched to stop. It just happened so quick that he mm. just tripped over. But as he said, like, he's, he just fell face down in the mud, you know, like, and um, me and Jared or Justin, one of the boys, we just rolled him over and thought he was dead because it was just smashed up glasses. You know, there's a helmet with a hole in it. And a lot of blood. Um, I thought, fuck, he's dead. So we just we just dragged him. We're trying to get him on the bird, but by then the bird's trying to take off. So it's sort of the Mi Seventeen's got a really big back deck big on step, him, yeah. got a ramp, and it's sort of like Liston trying to take off. So we got him on. Um, sort of, you know, everyone's still shooting out the back of the bird and the sides of the bird. By then, it looked like a pirate ship. But um, yeah, we ended up getting on and just taking off and you know flying really low and fast to get out of there. I remember looking down at my my Garmin at the time and just seeing the ground speed that we we're doing. It's like, these things aren't meant to go this fast. So Fuck. Belting out and it was flown by these two Afghan guys um, with the British hello in the middle. And I think it's um, a lot of this I learned later when I caught up with Joe in the US later on that year or the next year. But um, yeah, we just started working on him. Uh, Vandy, one of the other boys, he was, I think he was a paramedic before he was in DA. So we just started, you know, just ripped the kid out and just started, you know, we could see he was breathing. Like when Joe's chest moved, you knew about it. It was like, yeah, bear. that's it. Yeah, his chest plate looked like a beer coaster on a table. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we saw him move, so we just like trauma shears, cut all his kit off, and just started looking. He had no other sort of obvious gunshot wounds, and um, just sort of started patching up his head. And um, so I, was, when I was chatting with him the other night, just after we um, you did the podcast with him. He had, yeah, <laughs> I still remember the most painful thing was you putting that airway in. So. Um, started putting an MPA in him, so into his nose, and he he just come alive in the back of the bird, just sat bolt upright, talking about shit, something in my eyes, something in my eyes and my leg, and um, 
we just gave him the old rake. No, your leg's fine, but he kept complaining about his leg. And we said, oh, we just don't know what's going on. And, um, you know, we managed to calm him down, get him down, and just get him prepped. And I think we landed right right at the um, at the roll, was yep. roll three hospital back in TK. We landed roll right two, on the X there and um, got him straight in. And um, then the rest, they just sort of, you know, the first aid that those guys done was just phenomenal. Yeah. I think because he had a lot of pressure built up, and I remember because we hung around because obviously we were pretty concerned for him. And um, I remember that they put, I'm pretty sure they put like cannulas in the corner of his eyes to relieve the pressure that was going on, and just <sighs> like you would like like you do a chest. I can't remember the medical procedures, but um, yeah, it was just phenomenal what they were doing. And then I remember looking at the screen; and they'd taken an X-ray, a big chest X-ray, and you could just see this massive, big, dark lump in the middle, and it was like. Fucking Farlap's heart. <laughs> like, <laughs> his heart was like a third of his chest, I swear. And I remember the doctors just going, What the fuck is this guy? You know, so um, you know, he had a big heart. But um yeah, obviously they, you know, stabilized him, wrapped him up, and we sort of saw him off. And I think one of the boys flew with him to Kandahar. From Kandahar he went to Germany, and one of the other boys, Trav, ended up escorting him all the way home. Mm. I was talking about those funny dreams he had with Travis. So that was yeah. quite funny hearing about that. So, <laughs> but um, yeah, and they, they got him back, and I think yeah, we just did what you do after any sort of mission like that. Just yeah, it, <laughs> debrief just, it. Just just quickly, mate. Obviously, when you've dragged him on the helo, obviously he's fucking two hundred and forty pound. You've dragged him on um, before he sat up and started gobbing off. You've ta- obviously taken his helmet off. Was it just a through and through? It was. I was saying it like you could have put a cleaning rod through the helmet, through his head. And just looked that clean. That clean it was because yeah. they said like he reckons obviously it was armor piercing. I was that, that's was, the reason why it punched straight it through. Definitely, and you know that that sort of ties. It had to be AP. Like when you look at the damage done to the helo as well. Like that helo was the tail boom was like a cheese grater through and through. Yeah, they've got sort of two cables that run through the tail boom. Yep. I'm not an aero engineer or whatever they are, but yeah, they were frayed. Like the bird was XX'd pretty much for a good while. So, um, yeah, but it was definitely an AP round. I think that's what saved his life. If that had just been an FMJ, it would have functioned and, yeah, been a different story. So, you know, and it wasn't, you know, everyone goes, oh, did it do the old skim around the helmet? Like, as happened to a few boys, like one of my mates has had that happen. It's like, nah, it was through and through. And what was your reaction when he sat up and just started talking? Oh, fuck. We were like, like, fuck, it's a zombie. And, like, but we were right on the back ramp of this bird that's still near 300k an hour. Like, we were, <laughs> you know, we were right at the back of it we were. And, um, like, Jesus, no no one stropped in or anything. We just got on this bird and just got yeah. out of We were just hoping we didn't, he didn't go apeshit and throw us all over the back or something. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but... You know, and then he, he calmed down pretty quickly as soon as he realised the boys were with him and everyone sort of held him down and just reassured him, you know, all the first aid things you do. And we just did what we can just to, you know, get the get a lot of blood going down his face and down his mouth and what have you. So we just helped him out as best we could. But honestly, like, you know, when, when we rolled him over, um, we thought he was gone and how he survived that. Like, obviously, medically, but when you see that and... um you know, he's like, what the heck? And I think he talks about his neurosurgeon. Like, mm. some people weren't gonna, thought he was just gone when he got to Kandahar. Like, what have we got? But lucky someone was there that just thought, let's get this guy going. So, but um, yeah, we, we all thought he was gone, you know. 
Um, but, you know, obviously it's had a lasting effect on him, but has redefined Joe, you know, like, you know, always Joe, because he was always a bit cranky. Everyone knew that. But, you know, someone said, oh, it's going to affect his personality. He might be short and cranky. And it's like, he is. <laughs> so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, but, um, yeah, but, yeah, but, you know, we're all lucky he's here today. So Yeah, yeah. mate, absolutely incredible. And obviously, you know, you guys that were on the Hilo contributed oh, to saving his and life. it was a team effort that day. Like, exactly. You know, like, you don't get left on your own when you're somewhere like that. It was like, mm. yeah, that's probably the only time I've thought, no, nah, this is it. This is, this is like Lone Survivor. I don't even think that movie that. This is like, we've got an E&E. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. fuck. Bravo yeah. two zero. You know, because what if they say we're not, you know, what if we're not, what if we're not going to send a bird back in there? You know, because like helicopters are more expensive than humans sometimes, you know. Like, I think the only person that would come back in for us would be an AME bird. Like, and how much ammo do you reckon you had left at that stage? Not much. Yeah. We'd yeah. been shooting all day. Yeah. And like, you know, that's funny. When I caught up with Joe, I went over to DC for work just to go meet up with the DA mm. and sort of tie in the relationship with them training with us before we went to Afghan for the next time. And um, I went and caught up with Joe. He hadn't long got back to Richmond after that. Like, I think he'd been in Walter Reed and he got back and went up to catch up with him and talk shit and just relay our sort of event of the day to him. And um, I said, yeah, you kept complaining about your leg. And like, when he told me the story, like his suppressor had just burnt. That's right, yeah, through, yeah. Burnt through his pants onto his leg and that's what he could feel. But we couldn't see it because it burnt, you know, just the cry didn't light up, but it just burnt him through there like, you know, he had bacon paper around him. So That's crazy. Um, so that's how much we'd been shooting. Like most guys were running pretty low. Yeah. and. It was just a small amount less, so we had no belt feds. We had nothing. It was only me. I can't remember. I think it might have been all of or part of the PHQ or the actual platoon mm. that was with us. So there wasn't many of us, but um, I just remember we were all just, just trying to drag his heavy up. You know, like Joe's a big dude. He's a, he he said he was about 220, 230, I think he was at yeah, that we'll stage. Whack another, whack another. That's it. Another you know, fucking. Kid exactly. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's dead weight. It's not your mate. Pushing along with yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, but um, yeah, but you know, everyone got him on and got him out of there, and you know, it sort of. But once again, like, you know, we didn't make that shit up. Then we trained for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I can't. So. I can't believe out of all things, he was complaining. You know, when he sat back up, complaining about a burn on his leg. Then yeah, water in his eyes, something in his eyes, and a burn on his leg. And a burn on his leg. Yeah, but we thought he'd been shot in the leg as well, so yeah. we just to do the odd rake looking for holes that. Yeah, but, fuck um, one of that. I mean, he's a fuck. He's a gentle giant, absolute yeah, gentle yeah, giant, yeah, mate. Yeah, yeah, absolute. Um, and just to see what he's achieved since then, like you know, just he's he was already determined mm. you know, before that. But just to see what he's achieved since, you know, like he's a professional bodybuilder. Oh, he's oh, he's, he's a yeah. <laughs> he goes hunting still. Yeah, he goes hunting. He plays golf. Like he does, <laughs> he does everything. You know, so yeah, and you know, like. You know, we text each other every now and again. It's like you forget you're texting someone that can't see. You know, yeah. like, text him and just text back, like you know. So the technology is just enabled him to. You know, well, that's to what text. he was saying. Yeah, he's got this good app on his phone where he can yeah. point it at things and it'll tell yeah. him what and it he, is. Yeah, so it's good. Not no, I, I keep in touch with all the boys from that team still. You know, like I'll feel this. You know, drop off here and there, mm. close with some of them, but we always chat. Like, you know, I got a really nice like the family Christmas card you know, off one of the boys this year. And, yeah, so we become a really tight bunch, you know, throughout that trip and still, like, I'm um, actually, me and Ali, my wife, we're off to San Diego at the end of this week. 
um, for reunion with them. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so that's going to be epic. You're seeing everyone again for, I think we've got a three day wellness retreat and reunion. So, yeah. It sounds like a, Department of Justice funded safari, you know, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, um, a no, drinking be absolutely awesome to catch up with all the boys. No, that's so. awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I'd, lo- I'd love to catch up with Joe one day. Now, yeah. mate, um, obviously this was the last of your SOTGs, correct? Yeah, that was that was it. Sort of, you know, obviously we had a busy sort of time, and um, you know, I think after that trip, um, kids was on the card, so you know, I had a couple of false starts at having kids you know it's pretty hard to have kids when you're in between all these trips and you know the stresses and all that are on you but um so i ended up taking a i've always loved training training guys i've loved it i I think you develop your own skills so much more when you teach someone something so um one of my good mates was running the cqb cell at uh special forces training center as it's called back then and we that year we'll put a lot of our guys on their supervisors courses like i'm talking like absolute weapons of ncas like guys with three four combat trips um you know really really good operators who are about to do their cqb and urban supervisors so i'm like yeah i'm going to jump on that and help instruct them because they're just the rios that come off that course was just phenomenal like fresh combat experience off the whole sort of course and that sort of for me that's like oh this is what i want to do next is sort of pay it back a little bit and get into the CQB sort of instructor self. So I sort of I took a posting in early 2013 to there. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and just sort of once again just bit off more than I can chew and kept chewing <laughs> <laughs> and, and did that job, which sort of I'd done one of the earlier sort of CQB courses, which was half ran in Sydney, mm. half ran in Perth. So it was a bit of a mixture of, so is it a CQB course today or is it a selection? Like, yep, yep. So, you know, you just got good at doing what you needed to do to pass the course. You didn't get good at doing the job. That come on the job. But we all knew that you don't have time to train like that. You have to just train guys the right way the first time because, you know, we took guys straight off the route of the game. Like, we don't have time to get them up to speed. So I sort of knew it needed a bit of a refresh um, I'm really lucky. I was surrounded by a really good bunch of guys who had sort of set up the change that we wanted to make in that space. So we were able to make a heap of changes to the course and we sort of slowly introduced them that first year I was there, but I wasn't running the cell. So at the end of the day, it wasn't my train to drive. So, um, but it sort of set the wheels in motion for what I wanted to do. And once again, it just gave us another mission to focus on and something to do. And, you know, I was, I was happy. I, my son was born that year. So I was sort of bit more of a homebody, you know, and SFTC was a great, they call it a rest posting, but you just work 18 hours a day for about three months at a time when your course is on, but um, the rest of the time it's pretty flex. So it just enabled us just to do a lot of development in the training space and equipment space. So I had a really good team of guys around me and, um, yeah, we just set, set the wheels in motion to sort of reinvent the CQB course from, you know, it was sort of ran as a pseudo sort of, Sometimes it was a bastardization course. Sometimes it wasn't. Like it was a bit of a mixed bag, but most guys had found their course stressful. Yeah. Um, which our human performance wing had started to link like, hey, if guys find the training stressful, they find the environment they employed in stressful. So, you know, now they can link sort of that to a lot of PTSD and what have you. So guys revert back to being feeling under stress in a close quarter battle environment rather than feeling 
thriving in it. So we knew it needed to change. Um, Perth had some absolute weapons in their human performance wing as well um, that had really pushed forward in that sort of space as well. But um, because we weren't running the training internally, it was run by SFTC, so we had to be in that space to do it. So you just needed the right people at the right time to make it happen. So, um, yeah, I just happened to land on my feet with a good team there and we just worked at trying to reinvent the wheel. On the yeah, nice, vehicle. mate. Yeah. Yeah, right. And then obviously the next couple of years you've just uh, – you do a bit of PSD uh, over in Kabul. Yeah. And, uh, you know – that was a favour. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> my, my my CA looked after me because it was my 15-year retention for the MSBS bonus. Yeah. But it just happened to land while I was at – I took on an extra year at SFTC because I'd, I'd ran the first sort of pilot CQB course and I didn't want to leave without running another one so it didn't change again. So um, actually I think Mick spoke about it. Mick was one of the first sort of instructors. On yeah, the yeah. That's when I first bumped into him and I'm like, you know, not knowing him very well before that, but now hearing his story, it's like that's why he was just such a weapon of an instructor. Yeah. Like he took it really serious. Fucking love I even see him now when he trains his um he trains his young fella oh, how to shoot. He's ready, like, mate. He's ready for he, Chinese. His young fella could probably yeah. shoot better than half the dude in the army. <laughs> he's just absolute weapon of an instructor. Yep. He's just got a really good presence about him on a yeah. range of commanding and he just doesn't take a pinch of shit from anyone. Like, mm. you can't, you know, he calls a spade what he every fucking wants. Cause yeah, he can. exactly. So, no, he's um, a fuck good dude. So he, you know, when you had blokes like that just adapting the new sort of style will run him on the course, like some people are like, no, no, just smash him like we got smashed. It's like, well, we've got to mix it up a bit. And having guys like Mick around us just helped us sort of do that. So, but as, as part of sort of taking on an extra year at SFTC, like, like mind you, you remember Afghanistan started wrapping up SOTG. Yeah, yep. on it, so there wasn't the urgency to get back to the unit. Um, but my fifteen-year retention was coming up, and I'm like, "Fuck, I'm stuck in a training command on shit pay." Um, but yeah, I managed to wrangle myself to be a team commander on a full-time PSD in Kabul. So, um, which completely different trip to everything that I'd ever done. You know, like I was deployed as part of the big army. We dressed like the big army, like we were part of it. But um, yeah. it just it was awesome. Like it was one of the best gigs I've ever done. Like as a team commander, and I once again had a, just an awesome team with me. Um, you know, small four man team, um, a lot of autonomy, a lot of uh, a lot of risk placed on us, but a lot of uh, a lot of trust as well. We, we had a really really good boss, and the guys who were looking after him prior to me had made some key decisions that had, you know, pretty much prevented him from getting IED'd or shot. <laughs> you know, they didn't take him to events that they felt was high risk with yeah, something. Yeah. You know, so they'd really cemented that trust in with him. So when we hit the ground, he was just like, you're the man. You yeah. You splash my rank around when you talk to people because, you know, it was really, really good. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Had He was um, – the job he was doing was he was a deputy – Chief of Staff to Commander Vaisaf in logistics, oh, so he was controlling all the all the fuel rationing throughout Afghan, all the base handbacks or scalebacks, and all the um, all the gifting of stuff to the Afghans. So, um, you know, so we were every day out. We're out at like MOD every other day, um, presidential palace, like anywhere that he needed to go, we were going. So there's a good bit of tourism around Kabul. 
Um, we worked closely with all the all the city contractors. It was pretty much, you know, all two commando. Yeah. <laughs> I think we had dinner one night at the Thai restaurant there and there was like 15 of us that were all two commando, but most of the guys were working on the contracts. So, yeah. um, you know, so it was just really good to rub shoulders with some of my old mates again in that sort of aspect, but um, just a really good trip, yeah. Um, you know, travelling around everywhere. You got treated like a general even though you're just a shit kicker sergeant. And, <laughs> um, yeah, but, yeah, it was awesome. That was probably one of my favourite trips it was, so. Yeah, I think I said all my trips were favourites. So. Yeah, oh mate. But, yeah. No, but it was just completely different. Yeah, you know? You, you know, it wasn't. You know, you're not. Your job was just to actively avoid engagement. Of course, um, yeah. Which is a bit counterintuitive because you know, not, obviously, we're always looking for it um, in prior trips, but actively, you know, avoiding it is just. Yeah, it's harder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because it's like it's you. You cannot get your boss in the, in the shit. So there's a yeah. lot weighing on your shoulders and you're looking at counting a meeting that's been G'd up by, you know, it's the most important thing in the world for all these colonels that have set it up and you're, you're party pooping it on them. So, yeah. you know, some people don't like that. So, um, you know, but you had to make those tough calls sometimes. So, but we had some great opportunities over there. You know, we got to travel around a bit. We got to, you know, we got out to anywhere that he needed to go. So we saw the whole country, um, met some cool people as well. You know, like everyone wants to rub faces with the general. So, you know, and got to, you know, all the colonels and anyone above the rank of major was just constantly just dribbling to get in and talk to him. And one of the jobs he was looking at, he was doing the force review. So his second lieutenant colonel's like, they were, you know, Lance Jacks. Oh, fuck. <laughs> but, you know, every morning I had a half hour brew with him just to talk candidly about what we're doing for the day and the week. And, you know, I think he sort of in, and a lot of guys have spoke about this when they're looking after guys like that. Like, um, he just speak quite candidly about mm. his job. He, just, he could just have a one on one sort of, you become like their sort of counsel. Yeah. Yeah. Not right in my PAR. Like, we don't care. Like, so we could just talk shit, you know, so, which was really good. Yeah. For me, just to get an eye into the senior leadership of the big army. Um, yeah. So it was, it was awesome. That's awesome, mate. That's awesome. Yeah. So, and then uh, moving on to your discharge in 2018. So, yeah. obviously, everything's just coming to an end. The army's going back to peacetime. Yeah, it was sort of, you could see the writing on the wall. Like, I think 2016, I sort of went in, went into a job that was sort of like our, you know, you sort of manage the capability for close combat. So you're working on like getting in new guns, you know, maintaining sort of capability, feeding what the guys are doing in the unit back to the training cells. And it was a good job, but I think I, it was the first time we'd been raped as a unit back into like Exercise Hamill and stuff like that. And I went down there to run the white space on Exercise Hamill. I'm like, nah. Where it was. I can't even put in the words. Like, if you could see my face on the podcast, and it was like, fuck. <laughs> if this is what we got, we're fucked. Yeah, back to fighting the Missourians. Just, you know, like whole companies, and this is, I'd never been on a big army exercise. I'd never been in a battalion. So I, I've never been out and just forced to dig in and sit there for three weeks for nothing. Like, there's guys just digging in 24 hours a day out in the middle of Coltana. There's guys doing that. And all they were doing it for was so the Scan Eagle had something to fly over, you know, and it was just like far out. Like, 
No. So I got pretty, this is all we got. And we sent an element down there and I controlled all the targets and the, the mission sets for that. And it was like, nah, this is losing it. But I sort of, my last sort of hurrah was um, some of the capabilities I was working on back in the unit. I ended up picking up exercise long looks. So I got to go over to the UK for a few months at the end of that year. So that was sort of, you know, yeah, that was, that sort of kept me going for about another six months because I went over there and it was just an awesome experience working there. And then I come back and I was just back in sort of a peacetime. You now, for the first time ever, it was like a peacetime unit. And I was like, no. Nah. And, you know, you, you're doing shit. Like it was proper, felt like proper battalion stuff. It was all the, the death symbols that have to go, <laughs> renaming this. It was every day you're down there taking a different set of, you know, your VSI photos and your polys and, that because the policy changed on where you wear your medals and do you wear your you know like it was just shit was yeah just, yeah and i was you know sort of platoon sergeant managing a heap of dudes and it was like mate, i didn't i felt like i'd been a ferrari parked in the garage to gather dust so i was just like no nah. and I'm, i was burning the candle at both ends i was burning my family and i'm like no nah, i need a break so i just i started looking elsewhere for work so I started trying to study a little bit. I'd, I'd always tried to study in the army, but it's hard to do. I was doing a finance course, but you're trying to do your exam, you know, and prepping for a mission over in Afghan. So it was just too hard to, I've never been able to like be half-assed at everything. So I couldn't do half-assed study, half-assed soldiering. I had to do one or the other. So, you know, as I was getting out, I tried to do a bit more study. Oh, I quit school in year 11. I didn't really care about school up until then. As yeah. Well. So yeah. That for me. So, I'd um, tried studying, tried this, tried that, and in the end I just ended up just popping all my long service leave um, and a bit of leave without pay and just took, took a good nine months off work just to sort of work out what I wanted to do. So, And um, it was awesome. I was just a stay-at-home dad for 18 month, for nine months. So, um, yeah, nice, mate. And just sort of reconnected with my kids, um, probably disconnected from my wife yeah. <laughs> a little she was a pretty hard charge in her own career. So sort of, you know, life was at a bit of a turning point. Um, sort of dipped my toe in the water of a few jobs. I was doing a bit of, you know, a bit of work for some of the contracting companies, you know, running a bit of training. I went and worked doing R&D for, uh, for S.W.O.R.D. Down at, Luke, um, down at S.W.O.R.D. So I was flying around trying to drum up business for him and working on a few projects with him, which was all awesome insight. And then, um, yeah, I think I... Ended up a couple of weeks over in New Zealand, just out in the mountains, just hunting and just carrying on. Then I come back from like, mate, I'm done with the army and just walked in and just, you know, as quick as I decided to join the army, I just walked into the transition cell, which is just inside the gate at Holsworthy and just filled out all the paperwork, done the leave plan, marched up to the unit and just handed it in. So, <laughs> and I was off. So, yeah, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but all I knew it. You know, and I tell this to a lot of guys. I talk that lots of guys getting out and trying to get out and work out a plan because, you know, it's a big step for guys. And it's like I just acknowledge that what I loved about the Army just wasn't there anymore. Mm. So there's nothing to miss. You know, I miss the boys, but there's nothing that I didn't feel there was anything to train for. Like there wasn't that team environment. All the deployments pushed down a sort of individual level. So you got that sort of, you know, individual um, motivated behaviour rather than that team. You know, yeah, like exactly. My team going to the GAN, it's like four or five blokes knifing each other, shredding everyone's, you know, whatever it was just to try and get on a trip. 
you know, guys were just trip hungry then. They were either addicted to the coin or they just didn't want to do the army shit back in Sydney. So um, and I just didn't like that. And I'm like, I, got, I don't like partner force. I don't like tr- – I love training our own guys because they're motivated. Exactly. Afghans, mate, I couldn't give a shit. That's no, going like, to shit anyway. Good or not, as long as they went through the doors and hit the pressure plates, like, you know, like <laughs> I felt no connection to training. No. Nah. Like if defending your own country can't motivate you, I can't. So, yeah, um, yeah. So I just couldn't get motivated with that, and then I had no intention of just going over and doing training trips or worrying about trouser blousing and all that bullshit. That <laughs> I told one of my best my best mate the other day, and you know, he's like, "At what point do I have to start giving a shit about that stuff?" Because I just don't. And he's yeah. quite senior now, and he's like, "Maybe I'm going to be the first that doesn't care." So you know, and I'm like, "Mate, if you change, just I'll let you know." So, but. I just didn't care about that. I just knew I didn't want to be in the army anymore and I'll just look at my next mission. So I just pulled the pin and, you know, jumped without a shoot and just come up with a plan on the way down. So, yeah. Yeah, right. So you obviously, you get out and you start your masters. Well, that was a bit of an accident as well. Um, (laughs) Sounds like a continuing theme. Yeah, so I started, you know, military, like consulting work, you know, working back in defence industry or like industry is a really easy way for SOCOM guys. Yeah, I didn't want to go to UAE because once again, I didn't want to ch- train those dudes. Like, mm. I just don't believe in training. You know, tomorrow's enemy. <laughs> so, um, you know, I got no no desire to live there either. I love Australia. I love New Zealand. I love travelling. So, but um, yeah, but I'd started the application process and interviewing, and I was about to go work for another company that was Canberra based, and it was looking like I was going to be just doing shift work, like two weeks on, weekend off sort of work down there. And I ended up saying no to that. And the guy I was working with or interviewing with was XRSM of one of our SOTGs. And he just said, well, mate, look, do you want to go to uni? I've got some chick pestering me that they want to put an SF guy on a scholarship for uni. And I'm like, what doing? He has an MBA. And I'm like, yeah, sweet, I'll give it a whack. And like an hour after that, I'm interviewing on the phone for an MBA. This is like on the... This is like on the Tuesday before it started. Um, I had a quick quick discussion on the phone with the screen, drove in the next day for an interview and like, you know, I'm fresh out of the army, so the only good clothes I've got is like a suit with just rag hole, pinholes through it from medals. <laughs> I've done my wedding and like 20 funerals. Yeah, and 20 <laughs> and Anzac days. I had to buy clothes on the way to wear to this interview. <laughs> I get in for this interview and... You know, they send through send through all your academic results and I'll send them through my year 11 report, which is like handwritten, my apprenticeship cert for a couple of subjects I'd done at uni while I was studying that. It wasn't what we were expecting. Uh, where's your year 12 report? And, you're, and I'm like, mate, I don't have a degree. I quit in year 11. I just did 20 years of the army. Like, that's what I got. You know, but they ended up chucking a scholarship at me to study, um, do an MBA at AGSM, which is, you know, it, it is Australia's number one business school. Mm. So, um, that was full-time uni. Um, and then through that, I connected with uh, Quentin Masson up at Wandering Warriors, who sort of facilitated the scholarship and hooked you up with a few mentors and what have you. And bang, before you know it, like the, the following Monday, after going to Westfield and buying enough clothes to last the week, I, um, <laughs> I was at business school. And yeah, right. You know, I've gone from, from two commando to... To being a uni student. They, they said it was like, you know, it, it's not like, you know, guys in tracky dacks and sort of dressing gowns, yeah. like not that sort of 
uni. It was like business school, so it's pretty professional. Yeah, it wasn't TAFE. That wasn't TAFE. <laughs> um, TAFE was cool. All you did was smoke bongs. And <laughs> yeah, rock up in snug yeah, boots but, um, and <laughs> track your pants. Life. But um, no, I was just thrown into business school and, you know, like they bragged, oh, we've got the most diverse cohort. There's 55 people, more than 50% women, 18 countries. Like, it ticked every single box for, and like the majority, the, the only minority on that um, course was me and two other guys from SOCOM, like, you know, white Aussie males that had been in the army and were the minority. So, mm. um, yeah, so that was a good little support network. And yeah, bang, it was just straight into business school. Um, I was still in the army technically on leave. I think I'd even run out of leave, but I just didn't go back because no one cared. So, <laughs> um, and then, yeah, and that was it. And that was, you know, it's not, what I pictured uni to be, like, you know, I've always pictured uni students as just placard-wielding protesters that do two hours' work a week. It was five days a week, full-on, like, drinking through a fire hose learning. So, um, yeah, and that was it. And that was an 18-month program, and I sort of just hit the ground. You know, I was old. I was one of the older dude. I turned 40 while I was at uni. Um, there wasn't many people older than me, and if they were, they'd had experience and they had degrees. And one was a like an economist for the Mexican government, you know, like yeah, yeah, like, yeah. No, <laughs> and I'm like this dude that's dropped out of high school, and you know, what do I get called a casual sexist because I'm biased towards, <laughs> you know, because I've never worked with women. It's like, oh, fuck <laughs> it. you know, like can you, yeah, it was. It was a massive learning curve of how to integrate back into society. Into society, yeah, especially after 20 years of the military. Yeah. You know, like I wasn't a, you know, I could always hold a conversation with yeah. you know, with a general or I could hold it with the dirtiest digger in the world. You know, I can talk to anyone. I'm a bit of a chameleon like that. But, you know, but that sort of environment was like, it was full on. It was, it was like the biggest sub one for corporal you've ever mm. done. You know, like where the hell is everyone from? And you, you know, I'm this dumb grunt making mates with the clerk because I hope she can write my sort of minute, you know, that sort of thing. So yeah, um, you just had to once again just rapidly storm and network and um, work out everyone's strengths and weaknesses. And it was a team effort to get through uni. Like I was at that stage, my my marriage had gone to shit, so I was a single dad. Like this is all happening within about a month. So I was a single dad at uni. <laughs> trying to get my kids to school and daycare and then get into uni and then get home and do it all again. And, yeah, it was absolutely full on. Like, I've Fucking never straight into the deep end. Like that in my life. So, yeah. Yeah, but, um, you know, I'm get the kids to bed at like 8.30, start studying and back up again at 5.30 to do it all again. So, mm. yeah, it was full on. But, um, but once again, the teamwork there was just, you know, you found your new group again. So the teamwork there was just awesome. Like everyone propped you up like I had – you know, people would look after the boys. I'd take them to uni with me. <laughs> you know, it was it was hard, but um, got through it. So yeah, did uh, did anyone at the uni, you know, in your class know that you used to stack Taliban boys? Um, yeah, they did because so we were there on a military uh, leadership scholarship. Uh, me and uh, two other guys, um, actually three of us. One was a an Aussie guy who, about the same time I joined the army, he went over and joined the US Marines. So, and he, he was in the same, he was one of my, still one of my best mates from uni because we could just, just go gob off. just yeah. crack it. You just gob off. It was like our safe space. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, so there was four of us on military scholarships. There. Yeah. And, um, and AGSM was working quite heavily with, uh, with SOCOM to sort of, it's, it's, it's funny, you know, like all the stuff that had been dismantled in SOCOM is what 
city businesses, football teams, everyone just strives for. The first thing they want you to do is unite around a symbol, storm into the team that works, you know, do all of this sort of stuff. And here we are, like, you know, spray painting over Punisher scales at work, stripping <laughs> it down. And then the first thing they want you to do is build it back up again from that. So yeah. the first thing we did was a military leadership. It was a leadership sort of camp. Um, and it was ran by, funny enough, the company I was about to go work for when I decided not to work for them. So I would have been working on this camp had I not taken the uni scholarship. But it was ran by um, a lot of Perth guys, um, real mixed bag of people from everywhere, but it was sort of like a mini selection style 36-hour sort of event where you got put out in the bush. Um, you had to build like a shelter, you know, set up a camp, make a fire, do all this, and you had to do all these little stores carried, you know, mini sort of like yeah, hard yeah. selection thing. And, you know, obviously we'd been worded up, like we knew all the instructors and they brought all the SOCOM guys in and said, look, you know, you guys just keep your mouth shut because, you know, let everyone else sort of develop their leadership. As soon as we got out in the bush, like we're talking guys that have landed from Singapore that have never been to Australia and now in the bush and Cole, the guy that was running the camp, he's got like two pig dogs running around. There's <laughs> knives strapped to pig. They thought that they were just going to get killed by crocodiles, yowies and everything in between. So they were shitting themselves out in the bush. Um, so, you know, the first person they turn to in an adverse environment is all the, all the army guys. They're like, what do we do? <laughs> and we just had to sort of while we're remaining silent, just try and help these guys through this sort of leadership thing. And it was pretty clear they knew what we did after that. So, yeah. yeah, right. Um, yeah, so, you know, and they often talked about it. So, But sometimes in a negative effect, like they thought we'd, we'd all be like really like racist and sexist because we come from what they called like the pale male and style environment where everyone's sort of white man, you know, there's no, no diversity. And it's like, well, there's no diversity. In a, we've got rid of diversity by... You know, not everyone does this job. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> this job isn't for everyone. Like, only a certain percentage of the population put their hand up to the army, and then that's just a funnel and a filter down into SOCOM. So, yeah, you're going to get you're going to get a certain sort of person. So, yeah, we do have biases. We're all the same. Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah, you know, and so that's why we are like that. But, um, but we're also smart. So, um, yeah, so they all knew what we did. So, but you know, had its pros and its cons because you know sometimes our approach wasn't what was needed like and sometimes it was you know like, yeah exactly everyone's trying to develop their own little leadership style and this you know mba is all about leadership and it's like you've got a lot of leadership experience but you know you're not there to make friends sometimes and sometimes it, we had to demonstrate that sort of leadership it's like no this is what we're doing like you know we're having a meeting there's no seats just get in get the job done get home you know rather than Fluffing everyone's egos. You know, <laughs> so, you know, it's had its positive and negative. Yeah, you know, yeah, of course. Chewed out a few times. Of, you know, I think I got, oh, it's funny, I got pinged for being casually sexist because I called my mate a, I said he wasn't going to be a man anymore if he got this little fluffy dog or whatever. <laughs> you know, like something like, as dumb as that. Yeah. You know, on people and I realised, oh, okay, not everyone's like us, so I've got to tone it down. A yeah, bit, you're you know? definitely tone um, it down these days. Yeah, you know, we were pretty we were all pretty humble and pretty quiet. Like we weren't telling worries. Yeah. I did want to know what you did and are quite interested in it. And, you know, I think at the time, um, uh, one or both of the Pronk brothers were working with the uni, like lecturing us on leadership and that sort of thing as well. So they were well aware of who SOCOM were. Um, yeah. And the uni was working heavily with uh, SFTC or SOTEC as it was known then to establish courses for guys getting out and, 
yeah, one of my professors was an ex-AJ. So, yeah, it was a really good environment. So Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, nice, mate. And then obviously this leads us to the current day of, uh, you know, you, you got into business and opened up a uh, outdoor shop. Yeah, it was sort of, you know, the MBA was a – people use an MBA for different things. They do it to either enhance their career, pivot their career, or completely do a, a jump into a next thing. And um, you can either go down the path of getting better in a company, consulting for a company, or entrepreneurship. And I think Phil, one of my professors was – he was in the Army. He was in the 8 9 RAR or something like that. I can't yeah, remember yeah. exactly. It might have been 25, 49th, but yeah, right. he wanted to be a pilot. He's a grunt. And he applied to be a pilot, and he got all the way through until the last eye test, and they kicked him out of the army. Fuck. He's like, what the heck? So he had to just pivot his whole life, and he ended up going down in the study and starting his own businesses. Now he's a professor that lectures entrepreneurship at AJSM. Like, amazing dude. And he put this sort of slide up. By then, I realized, like, accounting is shit. I don't like it. Um, I didn't want to work for anyone, basically. I'm, like, I'm not playing well with others here. So, um, and I can't be stuffed doing the dance. Like, as I said, it was like an endless sub one, you know, just trying to impress people and bluff your way through. So, um, Phil said, like, you can be an entrepreneur where you just work hard and take all the risk, but no reward. And I'm like, well, that's what I was in the army. Like, we worked hard and someone else probably got the accolades in the end. Or you can be an entrepreneur and do all that for yourself. So, I decided, you know, I'm just going to start my own business. And I didn't know what. I just knew that I wanted to work for myself and I'll work out the rest later. And, sort of geared all my subjects towards that, took some really cool electives overseas. So just traveled a bit and studied abroad and just learning new things and new approaches just to widen my sort of, you know, horizons. And then um, sort of accidentally, well, I pretty much crashed after uni. Like, I'd been on the run since 1995. Like, yeah. And uni was just full on. My divorce was sort of settling. I was pretty well established as my new partner who I'm now married to, Ali, and, you know, who was you – know, I wouldn't have got through that year without her. You know, it was just horrendous it was, like uni, divorce. Yeah, it was pretty horrible for everyone involved. But, you know, thanks, Ali. You know, it, it is what it is. Yeah, I'm yeah. all over that now, but it was pretty horrendous. But I was in Africa at uni, um, and COVID had sort of kicked off in Australia but it hadn't kicked off in Africa. We'd heard about it a little bit. Like when I got there, when I left Australia, they were selling out of toilet paper. Mm. And when I got to Africa, they hadn't heard about it. By the time I left 10 days later, all the panic buying kicked in. The country was going to shit. So I got home just in time before they closed the borders. Oh, shit. Um, had to do the home ISO thing with the police coming around. And then, uh, yeah, and then just ended up, just finishing off uni a bit remote and then just I just crashed, just slept, drank, just did whatever I want for a couple of months, just absolutely burnt out I was. so, mm. And it was lucky because you weren't allowed to do anything for COVID. And it, I think if I was allowed to do it, I would have gone travelling or done something stupid. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just crashed and burned and Ali had lost her job. So we just, we just sat at home. We went to the beach. She started her own business. I sort of just started doing a bit of sewing as a hobby. You know, like I've always been good in my hands, so I started making. I wanted to buy a teepee, but the world had gone to shit, so I started making one, like a ultra light sort of. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I, I just started doing that, and you know, shared something on the old Instagram, and someone said, "Oh, are you making me one?" as a joke, and I'm like, "Yeah, I am." And someone else said the same, and then I realised I just flashed back to Phil entrepreneurship classes, like 
come up with an idea, fake it till you make it. And I ended up just as a bit of a hobby, I just went through a whole branding sort of journey that I'd learned and started applying some of the stuff I'd learned at uni, but it hadn't sunk in until I'd had that rest, you know. And then um, went through the whole branding journey, set up an Instagram and just sort of faked it, just took as many photos as I could without making it look real and said, I'm taking pre-orders for a product. And I got four pre-orders. I'm like, shit. <laughs> I ring up Luke down at Sword. I'm like, Luke, I've got a problem here, mate. I've got a good idea, but I need to make it. And, you know, ended up flying down there and just developing a product with another mate who's a para rigger and developing a product. And then uh, it took a long time to get into production. And then just as a result, you know, everyone else was started as we sort of started pushing it on the socials, everyone was asking us a lot of questions about other kit. And I realized my value was working in that sort of no fail mission environment. Like your kit was a big part of it. hundred percent it was. Yeah. And you know, they say a tradesman doesn't blame his tools. A good tradesman doesn't buy shit tools. So we're good at our trade. So we're good at selecting the right kit and everyone, everyone bags out SF for wearing, you know, you'll wear runners. It's like, yeah, well, you know what? Fucking laced up boots has never won a gunfight. Runners is pretty handy. Yeah, you know? so, it, yeah. You know, we we're good at buying kit and, you know, I've used a lot of kit. And so I thought, oh, maybe I can just be one of those guys that influences dudes and gets deals. And then I ended up just getting dealership and just accidentally launched a whole e commerce store. And it's now morphed into a pretty sizable retail store. Um, I've got really good government clients. I supply like New South Wales Police, um, New South Wales Ambos. Yeah, nice, mate. I still provide a lot of kit back to defence as well. Yeah. And, yeah, we just got a, a retail store and an e-commerce store with a good bit of government work as well, and that's where I am now. And it's like, you know, the pay is absolutely rubbish. Like, you know, I eat Cliff Bars off the shelf for lunch some days. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the pay is rubbish, but I think for a lot of guys who have got out, and have struggled getting out and have ended up back in. It's the lack of purpose. Yeah, exactly. And the lack of feeling like they got a mission. And mm. you know, I, I spoke at this sort of transition seminar a while ago. And, um, one of the boys that runs, oh, Blue, that runs, yeah, um, Craig, Andrews. Blue, Blue put up this quote, and it's like, you know, don't worry about your um, purpose, just find your passion and your purpose will follow. And I'm like, that's so true. Like, not just for me, but for a lot of other guys, it's like, you know, I was passionate about just getting in the outdoors, getting guys good kit. You know, I, I sort of saw people going on an outdoors adventure was their mission and it was my mission to make sure it was successful. So that's just sort of how I sort of framed it and how I brand myself as well. It's like, you know, I use my sort of past experience to sort of make sure you have a good one. And that's what I did at work. It's like, you know, the whole CQB continuum was like, I'm using what I've learned and what I've learned off others to make sure you have a good time. And now I've just taken that sort of model into business of just kitting out everyone from a, like a kid going out on his first camping trip to Duke of Ed or yeah. dudes going on an SF Macway course, you know, like you know, I take that approach to everything now and it's sort of, it just, it gives me purpose and I like it. I enjoy it. And, you know, and the side project is, you know, I get, I don't wear shoes to work if I don't want. I go to the beach at lunchtime. I have lunch with my wife every day, you know, like yeah. it's a lifestyle as well. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Mate, yeah. well-deserved. 20 years yeah. in the army, mate, far out. Yeah. And to come out the other end, you know, a lot of boys didn't come out from the other end and, you know, some, a lot of guys are still struggling. Yeah, man, and I talked to a lot of guys who, you know, and it's one of those things, no one talked about it. Like if you had a said in 2012, 2011, 2012, oh, yeah. you said, I'm cooked, I need a break, 
you were labelled a war dodger, and yeah. I'm guilty of it myself. Like, um, that guy doesn't want to deploy; he's weak, and like, but you don't see the effect of like he's got kids getting kept back at school, or he's on his second wife. Exactly. That's it. There's a no life, yeah. That. And I feel really, really bad. Like, I, I got caught up in it with a lot of guys, and a lot of guys are still like that. Like, dudes were cooked, and it wasn't until really, really good dudes who were cooked started killing themselves. Exactly. They were serious. Yeah. You know, like the hardest charging warmongering dudes I've ever seen fucking kill themselves. That's it. And then it's like it's real, guys. It's dudes. It's real. And that's when guys really started looking out for each other and going, actually, you know what? Like, yeah, I thought about driving in front of a truck the other day. <laughs> you know, like yeah. Guys openly talk about it now and if they don't find their purpose afterwards – um, I find falling off the perch. And a lot, yeah. for some guys, it's like, you know, I've got mates that coach the soccer team, the basketball team. They've found something to do. and But it's also acknowledging, like, not everything has to be hard charging, jumping off a helicopter, shooting dudes. You know, it can be whatever just gives you that sort of purpose, you know. And some guys, you know, I just do it by, I just acknowledge that what I liked about the Army is never going to be there. We're never going to jump off helicopters, shooting, blowing things up ever again. You know, I wasn't in my career. We might do it some other time, but, you know, like I think Willie covered it in his podcast. Like all these dudes going off to fight the Russians never saw a Russian. They just drove out and just yeah. stars and woke up in Poland. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's what war is these days. So, you know, what I enjoyed about it wasn't there. So my purpose now is just to make sure you get a really good water bottle and have a good time and I get to talk shit to everyone and, you know, in the process and, and enjoy my life. So. Um, I enjoy it. So no, good on you, mate. I speak to a lot of guys who are trying to get out or trying to do something themselves, and I, you know, I get a lot of enjoyment out of helping those guys go through. You know, like the MBA is great for teaching you how to sort of mentor people and you know a bit of business acumen, so you can have good conversations with people. Hey, man, you got a really good business here. Let's just tweak this, tweak that, or you know, the the most common thing I find and. You know, you probably find it talking about these guys just doubt themselves. They just yeah, no confidence, and it's almost like they can't do anything. That's what like SOCOM is the pinnacle of defence. It's like that. You know, I don't like team sports. You know, the only team sport I ever loved was a platoon attack. You know, like <laughs> you, know, you, you can't get a thrill out of sport. You know, some dudes do motorbike and parent. You you just can't get a thrill out of that anymore. So just trying to scale it back from that is really hard. Yeah. I think a lot of guys struggle to scale it back because they always want to be that. And they get out and they try and replicate the army in personal training. You know, they run personal training like a selection course or, you know, whatever they sort of didn't get out of the army, they try and roll into the civvy job. And I sort of spend a lot of time with guys trying to help them find their purpose again or or find their passion and just try and roll it into a bit of purpose or make a living out of it. So, you know, I, I enjoy doing that. I enjoy talking to guys and helping them in education or entrepreneurship. So yeah. Where I found myself now. Yeah, right. Ali, my wife calls um she calls the shop man crash because everybody <laughs> comes up here. There's another AJ sitting in here just just uh, going off. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've bought him a counter we're drinking brews like he's taken all of my day, but I'll give it to him. Yeah. Just to, just to talk the shit. You yeah. Know? Yeah, exactly. I enjoy that because it could be the difference between him going home and just swallowing sleeping pills or yeah, yeah home and starting his own business. Yeah, so, exactly, yeah. exactly. Now, mate, we're coming up to a 
couple of hours of speaking, almost three hours, mate, and it's been – Yeah, it's, it's fucked though. Like, One of my mates used to call me donkey because I could like waffle on. <laughs> like, <laughs> on track, so. yeah. mate, <laughs> Not for other reasons. Yeah. <laughs> no, mate, absolutely fucking cracking story. You've had a – you know, extensive career, especially within uh, a special forces side of things, and uh, to share that story with Joe on how Joe survived again, fuck knows, fuck knows. There's, yeah, oh, no idea. Joe's just one of many people that shouldn't be here. Well, that's like, that's exactly right. Everyone I know has had a really close call somewhere, and you know, Joe's obviously yeah, others, but yeah, but you know, for every for every person like me and Joe, there's another hundred of us out there. Yeah. Got a story to tell. Yeah, that's just my exactly, of. mate. And I'm I'm glad a lot of you guys are starting to get on and share your story because we need to we need to get out and share these stories because we'll end up like Vietnam and we'll miss out on everything. Yeah, it's sort of becoming a bit of a web. Like I've listened as you now we spoke offline about. I listened to you know many many hours of your podcast. Everyone that was on it, I reached out to and had a chat about it. And you know, I was always worried about what guys would think about me because I know mm. I do to be like. Kibosh from ever coming back to the unit again after doing some things out of sight. And, you know, I was always worried about that. But listening to all the other boys, it's like you don't realize how much of a small world and how intertwined it is. Like me and Mick worked out we were at Singo at exactly the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Three years ago. We didn't even know. Me and Muzz have just sort of bumped into each other. We've, we've worked in the same platoon and company a little bit, but like, I think two out of my three GAN trips, I hand it over to Muzz. Each yeah. Time. You know, like, yeah. We're just so interweb. Exactly, mate. Around and like, yeah. you know, all these little jigsaw snippets of stories that guys are telling you is putting together a bigger picture. And, you know, and I think, you know, we've got to own a narrative. Like, if we don't tell the story, bloody Willis, he will. Right. Yeah, exactly, mate. The media's telling it for yeah. us. And it's the, it's the fucking. Yeah. The PC uh, purple head version. Yeah, it is. You know, it's <laughs> you know we've got to sort of get hold of the narrative a bit. And like, there's all these poor buggers that can't speak out because you know, like Andy's done a great job of like you know supporting like the nameless. You yeah, know, these guys can't even defend themselves yet. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Get in, you know, so hopefully, you know, they say the rising tide lifts all the ships. Like if we tell our stories, it'll lift everyone up to sort of yeah. You know, Get us back on the podium again, rather than in the gallows. So. Exactly, and they yeah. they need to realise that a dead Taliban is 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 a good Taliban. As I said, mate, that that <laughs> NBA leadership camp, no one, everyone ran and hid behind the SOCOM or their military guys when the <laughs> shit hit the fan. They didn't they didn't hide behind you know another minority. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go, mate. That's uh, that's yeah. actually that's no a good run, one. No one runs and asks the battle tranny for help. So. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, like that's society. Like when the shit hits the fan, you need people to do that work and all those people are getting their, you know, absolute name drags through the gutter. Yeah. At the moment. So yeah. you've got to tell the story. Yeah, know? exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Now this mate uh leads on to our final couple of questions I ask our guests. First question, you've kind of actually answered that first question in the last probably ten minutes, but you know, what advice can you give to people just to keep on keeping on? You know, complete the goals that they set their mind to. Obviously, you joined the military under false pretenses of getting a, a truck driver's license, which you ended up getting, and then you yeah. stayed in for fucking 20 years, mate, but not even that. You hit the pinnacle of, uh, you know, a two-commander operator. Yeah. Mate, for me, it's um, you just got to not worry about what people think of you or trying to put yourself into a pigeonhole of, like, I want to do this or I want to be that, I want to be that, and – 
you know, blue slide just rings in my ear constantly now. Like I use it as a bit of a mantra now. It's like just do whatever you're passionate about. And, you know, if you're passionate about something, you know, they say, oh, if you love your job, you never work a day in your life or whatever. But if you're passionate about something, you'll find purpose through it. And then you just have to talk to the right people to monetize it. And then you can have your job, you know, because at the end of the day, we need to eat. So everyone wants a job. You know, you can run to the sandpit, you can run that, but just do what you're passionate about and speak to the right people and surround yourself with the right people to turn that passion into a purpose and then eventually a source of revenue. Like, as I said to all the boys that did the crate thing with Blue, it's like if I had gone up at the end of 2019 to my RSM, you know, he didn't even give me an exit interview anyway, but if he had said, what's your exit plan? I said, mate, I'm going to get out and I'm going to pack ration packs for a living. And I'm going to sell cups, canines to SOCOM. They'd laugh at me, mm. but I did that. I, I packed, you know, twenty percent of my revenue comes from making ration packs for police and ambos, and I sold like seventy-five titanium cups, canines to SOCOM. So I'm like, fuck! It. If yeah. I can do it, anyone can. Like, I didn't set out to do that. I didn't set out to be that guy, but I just found something I was passionate about and managed to turn it into a business. And you know, I see other guys do it as well, and it becomes their sort of they're, you know, it's like you keep it on. Yeah, guys are always going to do selection. I don't need to give guys tips for that. It's, I'm looking at guys at the other end that I want to give purpose to. But, you know, guys like Tom loves dogs, loves training them, found his passion, which was dogs, mm. found his purpose, which is origin canine, you know, and a lot of other guys have done that. And so I think, yeah, just do what you want to do, not what society or the bank tells you to yeah, do. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's funny because that, the you know, the slogan for Nike, just do it. Just do it, yeah. It's fucking just, simple. Just fucking do it. What, what do you got and, to lose? Uh, you know, in particular, like guys who have done the old running and gunning for years, just we've just lived with risk. Yeah. And like, That's it, yeah. Just, just fuck, just take some risk. Just take you, you'll crash, a little bit more, like, yeah. You know, you'll go, fuck, I've been rich, I've been poor. I've like, you know, I was nearly broke, homeless during uni, but I'm back again. You know, like I took some risk and I'm here I am. So, yeah. Just take that risk that you've always taken for someone else's glory in the army or whatever and just do it for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Be poor. Like, you know, I've put, I've bought stuff online with my own credit card just to put money into the business to keep it going the next week, you know, in its early days. You know, like you got to take that risk and just, if you're passionate about it, it'll work. So, exactly. Yeah. Worst, worst, you can re enlist. That's it. Worst, worst, you run in the sandpit and contract. Yeah. 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 Mate, second question What is the plans for the future? Obviously, Pass Outdoors is growing uh, by the year. It's still a fresh company. Um, Still fresh. I think we clicked over two years trading online this month. So, um, which is a bit of a milestone for us because it opens up to a a lot of the brands that I wanted to get. They need two years of trading before they'll let you trade. So, this morning I picked up. Um, brands like uh, Outdoor Research and what have you, which are premium brands that we've been after, so which is a good win, and we just plan to keep growing that. So the e-commerce side is easy to scale. Um, our retail store is filling up quicker than you know you could imagine at the moment, so we're probably going to be needing a bigger space or a second store soon. Um, yeah, just plan on growing that. When I say we, it's just me and Ali who just puts up with listening to me, but <laughs> I've got three staff now, so... yeah. Um, who I employ. So, yeah, we're looking to just keep growing that. Probably a second retail store will probably be the next one. Yep. Uh, which we've sort of got a bit of a plan for a bit of a, a superstore tied in with a few other brands. Like if you think like JB Hi-Fi, you know, you've got the Apple desk. We'd mm. like to have like a 
an, an archery pro shop in the corner or yep, yep. a fly fishing tackle shop or something like that. So just sort of growing the brand would bring another – my pipe dream is to bring other ex-mill entrepreneurs in um, to give them a space and give them the back end of a business to launch their own business off, you know. like so yeah, Awesome. Some budding entrepreneur with an idea, but I provide the back end of the business support and he just sells his product with this sort of thing. So um, that's sort of the plan for the business there. Um, yeah, and just keep on going with that. So until, yeah, I get sick of it. So Yeah. Um, and if people want to head to Pass Outdoors, passoutdoors.com? Yep, just .com. Yeah, well, we're on the socials. They're easy to find on Pass Outdoors, on Insta, Facebook, um, any of the chat bots. They message direct to my phone, so it's not some poor dude in the Philippines you're abusing. It's me. Getting <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm it. You, you message the company, you get me. Um, so, yeah, that's how we are at the moment, but that's the sort of service we offer. Yeah, right, and if you want to head to yeah. the shop. But not just, you know, not just for customers, mate. That's for, you know, I speak to heaps of dudes who've got business ideas. Yeah. You know, and I love hearing that. Yeah. I love hearing guys come in, giving business ideas. Yep. So, you know, I want to be that sort of man crash for people. Like, if you've got an idea, I'll tell you if it's dumb or not, or, you know, and help guide people, like, from that idea stage of a business to, like, how you can start your own. So, yeah. That's what I want people to reach out for. Like, if you want a water bottle, just fucking buy it online. But if you want advice on what your next step in life is, just call up. I'm always here to help. So, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome, mate. And obviously, if you want to head to the shop, uh, Unit 614 Park Street, Helensburg. Yeah, we're in Helensburg. Helensburg's pretty small. It's like a space put out of Star Wars some days. But um, Yeah, beautiful little place, though. It's a good little town, yeah. Just sort of nestled in between four national parks. Mm. I live down Stanny Parks, so I'm down on the beach, down yep, in the lower yep. lower end of town, which is beautiful. I, I love it there. I, you know, listen to the ocean, swim in it every day and come to work. So. Yeah, yeah, mate. I used to go surfing with uh, Merv McDonald down in Stanmore Park. Oh, good, yeah. Good, good fucking times, spot. mate. Good times. Yeah. And they've got a pub across the road, which is where you get your, your man's happy meal from. It's, <laughs> you know, you're staking a beer for about 20 bucks every day. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, mate, third question. Now... You're a hard charger. You're a Taliban body stacker. Um, <laughs> give us something that uh, people don't know about you. You know, guilty obsession. You know, there's probably, I don't know, there's got to be something weird. know me. I'm pretty loud-mouthed in an open book. Everyone knows I love cooking. I love coffee because, yep. you know, like how many dudes cook their guys' pancakes while you're getting mortared? Yeah, um, no, you're right. Yeah. I've always loved cooking. Um Cooking and coffee is just me. Like, I've always made coffee for everyone, brews, cocktails. It's just all my mates know me for it. Like you come to my house, you get good coffee, good feed, and good cocktails and good drinks. But um, now we spoke about this. Like, I don't know what guilty pleasure I've got. Like, I think something I have branched out into is a lot of – it's quite ironic. I, I love hunting. I love game meat. I love doing all of that. And then Ali, my wife, who I met at uni, is the maddest, most passionate vegan you've ever met. Like, she's just a health nut. <laughs> and that's how we connected. You know, I, I was telling you yesterday, like, we're on a, we're working on a case for like a company talking about like the mass agricultural effect on land in the Murray Darling Basin. Like, we're both arguing over how bad it is. And she thought I was a vegan. And I thought, fuck, she must be a deer hunter. <laughs> no, nah, and then she's like, oh, I love that you're so passionate about agriculture. And are oh, you on Insta? And she looked at my Instagram and is like, 
you know. Just hunting pictures, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and she was like, what the fuck? But, you know, here we are and we're just completely opposite. But um, it sort of meant I've had to learn how to cook again. Um, yeah. You know, like she's a pretty pretty strong woman. Like, and uh, so we pretty much eat vegan at home. So I've had to learn how to cook. Yeah, so my right. guilty pleasure now is just reinventing the way I cook and eat and cooking like what used to be, you know, tacos for 20 people made out of a deer's neck. Now it's ta- tofu <laughs> tacos. tacos. You know, so it's almost <laughs> like cooking is my guilty pleasure. It always has been. But the other side of it now is like just cooking plant-based food. And, yeah. Oh, fuck um, it. Doing that just to keep, you know, the happy wife, happy life. Yeah, that's love right there, mate. That's love right there. So, um, yeah, so probably your first hard-charging vegan cook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, it's become some, you know, once again, like, I can cook, I can do that, but yeah, something new I've had to learn. It's like, fuck, having to learn with your, to write with your left hand again or something that's become something I've had to learn to do again and just, you know, I've been healthier for it and yeah. you know, it's something that we've been able to bond on, you know, like, rather than just, yeah, but yeah, don't get me wrong, I'll go and just dust a 650-gram steak if I get <laughs> Oh, fuck yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, I feel like a naughty puppy that's just gone out and done something <laughs> that I do it. But, um, I dare say my guilty pleasure is is cooking, you know, you know, I'm not talking, we don't just eat lentils and salt. Yeah. Like, we like kings and Ali's like super fit, super healthy and, uh, yeah, so probably – Plant-based cooking for yeah, nice, mate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. At least it'll, I guess it'd be cheap uh, when you head to restaurants and stuff because you're just getting oh, just yeah. It, it isn't. It isn't. You know. So yeah, I suppose these days, yeah, fucking hell. Nice places charge you forty bucks for a salad. We do eat a lot. We do eat a lot healthier. Like yeah. You know, so um, yeah, but you know that, that's what it is these days. But yeah, so it's a bit of a dichotomy of of life. Like I still love hunting. I, I go away to New Zealand every year with the boys. Um, yeah, it's still part of my life. Yeah. So I don't talk about it with her. She doesn't want to know. Yeah, well, you've, you've hunted most <laughs> of your life, mate. You know, deer heads and shit hanging off it. And yeah. <laughs> at home, but, you know, it's just we just accept each other. Oh, she doesn't accept it. She pipes up about it, but we just accept each other. That's who we are, and we've got a lot in common. That, yeah. You know, just going, so. Yeah, yeah. right. No, they just said, mate, you've been hunting for most of your life. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> two legs and four legs. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck the Taliban, fucking weirdos. Yep. Um, now, mates, it's been an absolute fucking pleasure to have you on, mate. Obviously, we were a bit iffy at the start, uh, but we got there. I, as I said, I was iffy because, you know, I've always wondered what, you know, I had to do my check up because a few guys, you know, have yeah the public sort of life. I haven't hit it too hard. Like, I was pretty quiet with uni, but then... I learned at uni you had to rebrand yourself because exactly, you got, mate. You got to sell twenty year gap and a CV. Everyone thinks you're just a dumb door gunner, um, <laughs> which so is you fair. Have to sort of, no, I am smart. Like I can, yeah. Um, but you know, some guys probably haven't done it as well as others. And you know, I was very always conscious about. You know, we've lived in the shadows our whole life. Mm. Like, no, exactly. Out, like, it literally is just coming out. So yeah. Um, you know, I just had to make sure that. You know, lots of phone calls, lots of chatting to guys, and just yeah, it's a big thing for a lot of guys. It is so yeah, it can you know sometimes it might get turned against you. Oh right? fuck that's if you yeah, mate. Yeah. I'll I'll edit it to make you sound like an absolute baby killer. <laughs> 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 Mainstream <Yeah>. media. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they probably will anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> they will, mate. Yeah, we'll see. We'll come yeah. out and fucking chop it up and yeah. fuck wankers. Mainstream media, get fucked. Yeah. 
Um, but mate, uh, so mate, if people want to get in contact with you, they can either head to your pass outdoors or they can find you guys on Instagram and yeah, that's, that's always the easiest way yep. to do it. It just, you know, you can just message me on any time on that and then we can just go to, you know, flick over to like text or WhatsApp or whatever you guys want to talk about. But, um, as I said, I'm not here to, so I'm here to help dudes become me, you know, like yeah. successful transition from defense and like, I like, I always sort of say like transition through education and entrepreneurship is what I like to do and help people with. So that's what I want to hear from. I want to hear someone with a dumb idea and then just help them make it happen because that's what they're passionate about. So Yeah. Yeah. Now, awesome, mate. Again, uh, super appreciate you coming on and I'd love to catch up one day too. Like we'll yeah, definitely, yeah, you're only yeah. You're only down the south coast. and mate, I, I could be up your way early April. So Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, we're looking at a few things up there. So No, awesome, mate. Let's, let's yeah. do it. Yep. So is it, mate? All right. Well, uh, stay in contact and uh, thanks thanks again. No worries. Cheers, mate. Thanks, mate. Wait, wait, wait. Now, quickly, just before you go, I want to tell you about Three Zeros Coffee. As you know, I like my coffee how I like my men, long and black. (laughs) However, lately, I've moved into the cold brews. I'm loving it, obviously, because the weather here in Australia at the moment is quite hot. So what I've been doing is using the seasoned campaigner pour over filter bags, literally rip open the packet, put the filter bag over my coffee mug, a few ice cubes, pour in some hot water, let it cool down, add a sugar or two just to make it sweet, and I fucking love them. Honestly, you get the kick that you need out of the caffeine, and the taste is great. So if you want to get yourself a supply of coffee, head over to 30scoffee.com.au. From there, you can choose whatever you want. You've got the beans, you've got the pour over filter bags, you've got some merchandise, And just to let you know that a percentage of their sales is forwarded to organizations that support first responders. So while you're getting your coffee, you're doing a good deed by getting some of this money to the first responders and where it needs to go. While you're there, don't forget to use the discount code 3ZLIMITS. Now look in our bio, you see that discount code, use it, get your discounts. So again, jump onto 30scoffee.com.au and grab yourself a supply.